Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, slightly unconventional show. Funny I should call it unconventional because the Denver Comic-Con figures into our first segment. I don't know if you heard about what happened at Denver Comic-Con, but we're going to cover it with Crystal Skillman. There was a Women in Comics panel that was a very academic panel uh, about the history of women in comics, specifically just superheroes, pretty by the numbers. And frankly, it was... uh, run by three white guys, no women on the panel. And that kind of irked some of the women uh, there. Uh, Outcry went out uh, in blogs. My friend Amber Love wrote about it in her blog. Crystal Skillman happened to read about it and got uh, surprised. And Crystal was there on a couple other panels. You know Crystal. She was just on Word Balloon a couple weeks ago. Wonderful playwright uh, in the geek culture. And uh, she really spearheaded a flash panel that happened on Monday that uh, featured current women in comics, uh, great uh, comic uh, legends like Trina Robbins was involved as well and uh, it's a great story and I'm really happy that this all happened and shows that you know a uh, they did something about it and also met what uh, I think a lot of the attendees were hoping for with a women in comics panel and that the convention uh, made the time for it but more importantly that it really was this grassroots thing that started uh, with Crystal and uh, a few other uh, creators and uh, comic uh, journalists. So I let uh, Crystal give her first-hand uh, view of what happened on uh, segment one of Word Balloon. You're going to hear a little cameo from our friend from Comic Geek Speak, uh, Pants, Brian Chrisman, because uh, Pants wanted to come on, or I should say I wanted Pants to come on, uh, because he, last week, was at David Letterman's last show. And uh, if you know uh, and listen to Comic Geek Speak, uh, you know that Pants is a huge Letterman fan. He has attended uh, Late Night with David Letterman uh, over 30 times. And uh, we talk about that and a few other things. Just have a good kind of fun talk about talk shows and what we loved about Letterman and a few other things. But it's uh, great to catch up with Pants. And we're going to do that in the last segment of Word Balloon. But you'll hear a little bit of him with Crystal because uh, I thought he could address some of the uh, things that we brought up in our conversation, Crystal and I. Finally, in between, you're going to hear Hillary Barda, because Hill has some books coming out. Uh, the SpongeBob Annual, he's got a story in there. And then from IDW, he has a story in the Garbage Pail Science Fiction issue, which features a crossover between the Garbage Pail Kids and the Mars Attacks aliens of Wallywood fame. So, uh, interesting story, uh, good stuff from uh, Hill that's coming up in June. He also has the cover to Plastic Man and the Freedom Fighters Convergence issue, number two, and uh, that came out this week, and it was great to catch up with Hill. So that's in the middle. Crystal Skillman, a little bit of pants, then uh, Hillary Barta, and then a whole lot of pants at the end. That's uh, today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by uh, the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you for your support, as always, League. I uh, truly appreciate it. If uh, you want to help the cause out, Go to patreon.com slash word balloon. And if you can spare a dollar a month, that's terrific. Word balloon is a free podcast. It will always be a free podcast. But uh, if you want to help the cause out, go to patreon.com slash word balloon. All right. Let's talk about the Women in Comics panel with uh, Crystal Skillman, who uh, managed to make it happen. I'm going to fill in some of the details in the postscript. But uh, the great thing is the audio for that panel is online. And uh, based on what I read and what I heard about from Crystal, it sounds like it was a great success. And uh, I I will direct you uh, in terms of where to find it. And uh, it sounds like it's another great thing to listen to this weekend. So uh, make sure you check that out. But first, listen to Crystal Skillman's firsthand uh, view of how this flash mob panel, eh, we should call it a mob because it was a flash panel that happened at Denver Comic Con. But here's the story now on Word Balloon. 
Uh, we got a little bit of uh, breaking news, sort of, because an interesting thing happened at uh, Denver Comic-Con this past weekend. Uh, first of all, huge show. My God, uh, over uh, six figures in attendance, really pushing Denver now in one of the as, as one of the higher attended cons uh, in North America, let alone the United States. And uh, she's back. Crystal Skillman uh, was there. And we talked about the fact that you were going to, to Denver Con to uh, do a couple panels and stuff. You suddenly found yourself part of a, another uh, con. But first of all, welcome back. It's good to talk to you. Again. Yeah, you too. So, um, you know, I know you and Fred were going to do a uh, Married Geeks kind of uh, panel of some sort. Yes, it was amazing. Um, uh, Hannah means uh, Shannon, right? Uh, from uh, Bleeding Cool. Yes, very cool, very cool journalist. I'm a big very fan of her. Very amazing. Since. And um, she did um, a podcast with Amanda Connor um, and I. A podcast or a panel? Well, actually a panel. Uh, Go all on. got, uh, But they all got um, uh, recorded. Recorded, yeah. And uh, and that was the married one. And it was, uh, you know, about Amanda and Jimmy and Fred and I. And it was, uh, you know, that that was kicked off the panels for me. I think Fred had done a couple be- before that. And they were fantastic. It was fantastic. It was the first time I got to meet Hannah. Um, we talked a little bit um, just, you know, in the hotel and stuff. But um, her questions were amazing. She asked us to actually, you know, act out an argument, <laughs> each couple when we started. And we loved it. And we all were, were both kind of funny couples. And we, we found a lot of similarities, actually, in how we worked. And um, it was a really cool panel. I think fans really enjoyed it. And that's where kind of I was just seeing the magic of Hannah's journalism, which was very um, insightful, but also very personal and fun. Uh, and so that kind of uh, was a relationship that was kind of important for the whole weekend, I think. Very cool. I want to look up his credentials here because there was a bit, there was a little bit of controversy. Um, Kevin Robinette is uh, a professor and, uh, he is an instructor on the history of comics at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. And he had a panel on and you tell me where you will go from there i don't know too much about about the actual panel that went down that was the women in comics but without women um i simply know it was him as you were saying and and he's done this before and and it was really coming from the history of women in comics and that yes. kind of thing um i got wind of it really after uh, almost a day after it happened um and what it was is that i had come across an article um mentioning me and the other creators uh women creators and uh there was definitely a you know, there was definitely an uproar, uh, you know, if, if we're going to talk about women in comics, why isn't there a woman on the panel? And it, right. And it was, and so that's, and, but what I really hooked on to, um, you know, I got that there was an oversight, you know, like, I mean, you, there's a lot of great blogs out there you can read that kind of go into, um, how could this happen? You know, obviously you should include a woman on this kind of panel. Um, but it was also clear to me that it was kind of like this panel seemed a little bit more about the history of women in comics, not really about women in comics now. So, right. so my my impulse was that there are two things happening. One is that a woman wasn't included. That's and you've got uh, uh, Trina Robbins there, you know, which is amazing. Uh, right. And Trina, for people who don't know, Trina Robbins, a wonderful writer who's had a, a very long history, both as a fan and as a professional in comics. Uh, Trina did, I'm almost completely certain that right when uh, DC, during the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, kind of rebooted Wonder Woman, uh, she had a, a Wonder Woman miniseries that ran to bridge uh, the pre-Crisis Wonder Woman continuity and the George Perez run that started immediately after Crisis. 
and just a really smart historian as well. But I, but I, I mean, honestly, just in terms of fairness, I, I, cause I, I feel like there was a, a small bit of a misunderstanding, not being there that Kevin Robinette is an academic and they do a lot of panels. And I really look forward wow. to those panels where, you know, it is, it's just purely comic history. And yeah, there are, I mean, I, I and I really last year in San Diego, uh, God, I, I, there's the whole comics arts line of programming that happens in a completely different group of rooms. And they are the most – if you are really a nerd about comics history right. and it's all aspects of comics, these can be really, really interesting. And that's taking nothing from or away from whatever happened in uh, Kevin Robinette's panel. And I've got the article in Comics Alliance. Uh, I've got Christy Black's description. And she says, if I may, yeah. I'll just say the, pan- the panel was basically Kevin Robinette. And then it says in parentheses, I'm pretty sure that uh, was the main old white guy as they didn't even introduce themselves, lecturing via slideshow about the first women to appear in comics. It pretty much came across as a let me tell you what I know. And he really didn't know much. The other two panelists looked embarrassed by the whole thing and tried to interject two or three times. Kevin just barreled over them with his agenda of getting through all of his slides. It was a lot more, this woman appeared here and had this many issues. He did mention Trina Robbins' work uh, with Miss Fury and that she was at the con. There were a couple really offensive statements like boys don't want to read about girls and girls got bored easily with comics. Of course, they brought up Wonder Woman and bondage and using her lasso to get the truth out of men. Uh, this is all on about Kevin's panel. They had 67 seconds at the end of questions. At this point, more than half of the people had already left. I stood up and asked why there weren't any women on the panel. Kevin's response was that it was a last-minute addition to the schedule and that he didn't know any. The other yeah. two guys said, you're right, there should be women on the panel. I told them, frankly, it was offensive to not have women as part of a panel about women in comics. Kevin said, well, the panel was successful. It got here. I told them, no, it, it, it didn't. I was raised in comics and like comics well before this panel. Some lady in her 50s told me to get over myself and she <laughs> she exited past me. Later that day, I met with Trina Robbins and that panel came up. She was appalled that it happened, threw her hands up in the air saying, hello, I'm right here. Yep, And that's very Excellent. similar to where, where I kind of come in is that I had, I had seen this um, Christy writing on the internet and I had seen her friend um, who goes by the name Amber Love on Twitter so we can find oh, out. Oh, I know is. Amber. Do you know Amber? Yeah. I do know Amber. Actually, oh, I should I should probably uh, try and get in touch with Amber and get her. Yeah, point that of view. would be great. But uh, she basically then she wrote an article kind of that really inspired me in the sense that she just you know uh, really latched onto what I think I'm latching onto is that I mean part of the problem here is just simply the title. You know, I mean if he wants to do a historian thing, um, you know, women obviously don't want their history just completely told by somebody else. <laughs> um, yeah, so that. But also, you know, women in comics is is. You know, I think what the, that it seemed to me that seemed to get lost in the conversations that I wanted to correct in the actions I took in the next 24 hours was that mm-hmm. there are women out there, young women and excited fans that want to know how to create themselves and want to know how to get their own ideas out there and want to know how it happens. And if I heard women in comics, that's what I would think it was. And that's why I would come. Um, and so I just think there's, there's, there's the, that issue that there's no women on the panel that, but the, also that it's, you know, I mean, history is history. It's not called the history of women in comics. It's called women in comics, which means it's contemporary now. Um, so basically when I read Amber's loves, um, article, which literally was like, don't title it that number one, if it's going to be crazy like that. Um, but also, um, just because I think, you know, Kevin or not, I don't know him. I can't really respond to any of that, but I think, um, what, uh, uh, I, I really latched on to is, is, is that Amber was like, go through 
the aisles of Comic-Con. They're all here. You invited them here as your guests. You actually have done a good job with diversity. I mean, she didn't actually go so far to say that, but I think that was underneath what she's saying. Like, they're all here, you know? Um, go get them. <laughs> sure. do this panel. And when I read that, something in me went, well, I am here. I have my booth. Um, I can do that. And, and then I was like, but is that crazy? You know, I mean, because, you know, you're there. There's a lot going on. And um, Trina happened to stop by. Two things happened. Trina stopped by right after I had this thought okay. and um, to say hi to Fred. And I was literally like, Trina, Trina. I want to talk to you. And she was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, Trina, when you meet her, she's a force of nature. Um, she not only is these great credits you've mentioned, she's got um, a great new series called Chicagoland that she shared with me. She's um, actively writing today. And Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to contact Trina Robbins, perhaps, and uh, find out what's going on in Chicagoland. Go on. Is that a graphic novel? A graphic novel, brand new. Um, she shared with wow. It's enticing and fun and um, and really cool, and it's great uh, for families and girls, but also, like, preteens, too, I think will particularly take to it very well. Um, awesome. It's just kind of teenage girls solving mysteries, but in a very cool way, um, and a lot of great um, themes in it. Um and uh, and doesn't shy away from the dark, you know, because Trina's a Trina's a smarty. And so, uh, I, you know, I was like, uh, "Hey, Trina, this happened. How do you feel?" She's like, Let, "Let's." I I just said, "I don't know if this is crazy, but I thought, what if we get a room and we just we just get everybody together? What if we do what that article suggested? What if we go down the aisles and we get everybody? What do you think about that?" And she's like, "Yeah, let's do it." So once I realized I had her on board, then I realized um, that I was actually having dinner with Hannah that night um, with the Valiant guys. So. Um, I was like, cool. So I'm going to talk to, I said to her, I'm going to talk to Hannah tonight because I thought she should moderate, be a part of it. And then Hannah and I got to know each other even more through dinner. Hannah, despite her incredibly insane schedule out there, is like, yeah, let's do it. So now, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me a little too of the Cradle of Rock story, not the movie, which was not so great. But if you hear, um, you know, um, Hausman talk about, you know, how Cradle of Rock happened, that musical, you know, they were barred from doing it on the stage and, they ended up uh, having Mark Blitzen, the composer, do, the, do it on the piano, and the actors ended up acting it out from the seats. And he always ends by telling the story by, for all our big talk. So for all my big talk, I've got Trina, I've got Hannah, I don't have a room, I don't know if this is a good idea to tell the con that I want to do, like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I was like, let me sleep on it. So, um, and Fred's just amused by the whole thing and also super supportive. He's like, this is great. Like, he's really excited. So I wake up the next morning, and the Valiant guys also got very excited. I mean, that's the other things I realized the other guys I was talking to were like, yeah, and everyone was so into this idea. So I wake up the next morning, I'm like, I don't know how to make the crazy promises I said happen. <laughs> so I'm just happening to be getting coffee. I, I'm a talker, and so I just started talking to people in yellow shirts that were <laughs> clearly programmers or volunteers. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I need a room. I tried to, to email the um, educational folk, but they were all busy, so I hadn't heard back yet. This is like 8 in the morning of where we said we were going to have – this is the last day. This is Monday. We've got to do this. And I – oh, by the way, Hannah can only do between 3 and 4. And okay. And Trina. So, again, I have very specific variables, and the con ends at 5, you know. So um, I happened, So I stopped um, – and it ended up being Christopher, Christopher Whitfield. And um, he's like, I actually programmed the panels. And I go, Christopher, you're new. who do I need to talk to? And he was really uh, lovely. And I think it was really exciting for him uh, to be accosted by me at 8 o'clock in the morning um, over Starbucks um, in the hotel. But I also think that he, he really wanted to have this conversation. He was very hurt. He, he was like, I, we, you know, we tried our best. I understand the panel. Like, go well. I feel terrible. What do we do? 
And I was like, this is what we do, man. You made a mistake. You know, th- there was a mistake here. Th- it wasn't well handled, you know, in terms of like this original panel. It seemed like it was a last minute addition. Um, seems like the, I can't speak to the panel, but maybe it's just to be titled something different. <laughs> um, sure. You know, I don't know what it was exactly. I wasn't there. Um, I have I have it all now. Women in comics, creators and characters with the female interest in comics increasing lately. This panel <laughs> discusses many of the popular female characters well, from the beginning tough. Of the superhero mid-1930s comics, also a focus on some of the women that were able to break in the mostly male club of creating comics during that time. Yeah, you got to have a woman on. I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, and it was Kevin Robinette, uh, Craig Glasson, uh, who was an art instructor in the Denver area, and Jason H. Tucker, uh, who uh, does an interactive graphic novel called The Way. They were the three people on the panel, and that is kind of odd that you – you would, th- especially with Trina there in particular. Were there any other? I'm just curious, and, and I because I want I want to hear about you know then. So there, first first of all, there was no women in comics panel other than this one that was scheduled. No, the initially. one I uh, created was being created on the fly. Almost right. like, that's why I kind of call it Goodfellas. Like moment to moment, it was changing, and we didn't <laughs> even have a room at that point. And I think that Christopher understood, you know, they've got a lot going on and they have a certain way that they do panels. I think it's a committee that ends up, you know, picking and choosing, but not just one person. Yeah. And that can, that can lead to all sorts of things, um, good in and, and hard like this. Um, and I think he recognized, uh, and, 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 you know, wow. you know, that this was going wrong, but he also was like, you know, they're not focusing on what's positive about what we're doing, which was a lot. There are a lot of panels, you know, it's also, we also, you and I know this from the industry, you know, um, no one talks about the good sometimes, you know, and if you've got, Oh, absolutely. And, and that you're right. And I mean, I was hearing very good things about this yeah. weekend and programming in particular, that there were interesting panels and great opportunities beyond here's the publisher, here's the books, you know, the obvious spotlights of some of the big, the big players and stuff. So it is kind of, you know, I'm, and also it's cool that the guy that was in charge of programming is like, Hey, let's do something. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know if he was going to, you know, we're seeing, I mean, there were beats in this conversation <laughs> where it's like, is Chris going to throw coffee at me? Like, is he just like, what does he feel? And it was really, I think for me, what I love about the story and why I wanted to talk about it so much is that we're always so scared to, or, or, or Trina's never scared, but you know, we, we sometimes might hesitate, you know, should I do something? Should I say something? And this is a story where it really proves to you, um, you know, sure. I'm sure if someone's, you know, totally crazy, you can't really maybe talk to them. But I feel like in, in having this conversation, it was it was helping Christopher and it was exciting him. And he's like, and he whipped out his computer. He goes, what room do we have? And he just started problem solving with me. And through Great. problem solving together, you know, um, you know, and even then, you know, it's almost through that action and activity. He was kind of understanding, you know, how people were feeling out there. You know, and I think one of the things that's hard to understand is there's a lot of reaction on the Internet to how – how everything <laughs> it's hard to feel yeah. like what what is real and i think yes. what I, I think it really clicked for him when i said you don't understand women want to create things today they're looking for inspiration and that's what they thought this was going to be and that's not what this was we can talk about whether it was history or god all guys or you know and definitely trina was very upset like why wasn't she has to be involved there's all of these issues but the big issue to me is that you know i mean you've got a young woman in there and she wants to know she wants to talk to women creators. I mean, like that's what she wants. And you've done a successful job bringing them here for this con. There's amazing people here. Let's make this happen. And, and, and then you could see things started to click for him. Like, I get it. I get it. So like, um, so he was so great, found us a room for a couple hours. 
Um, and you know, we only ran it for an hour because it was ish because it was near the end. Um, okay. Sure. Then I had the room. So then I text Hannah. They text Trina. Um, and then literally that whole day, you know, I, I hit the floor. I did do some crunching. I just don't want people to know that you have to work things in. I did do like 10 minutes at the gym. I was like, this is a very nice gym. I have to do this. So then I did that. I ran to the, I ran to the convention and then I just started going, um, down the aisles. And, um, uh, I had also texted Jimmy, um, Amanda's, uh, husband and he's like, sure. she, you know, cause I had seen him the night before for drinks. I was like, I have this crazy idea. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just happened to pass by him. He's like, let me, let me ask her. Um, and she was so supportive and excited. Um, and then, um, and then literally, I mean, I went to Megan's booth. Um, I went to everyone's, I mean, and everyone was busy and that's what I really like about uh, what comics, uh, I think it's comics Alliance wrote about. I mean, for for these creators to take the time out like this, um, of being tired of being signing, of getting ready to go, trying to get everything together. Um, it was so inspirational. Um, and now Keep in mind that even as that was happening and I was gathering panelists as we went, um, Bleeding Cool only said that we had Amanda, Trina, and myself. Um, but then I had Megan. Um, and then I had uh, Joelle. Um, Joelle Jones, okay. Amazing. I mean, wow. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Uh, yeah, no, we, we, we hung and sang karaoke a couple months ago when she was in town. No, I'm a big fan of her. She's excellent. And and she's, she's due on word exactly. Go Marguerite on. was at lunch for a while. So to- yeah, I, wanna meet, I still want to meet Marguerite. Absolutely. Around, got Marguerite. Now, keep in mind then, even then, I don't know what the setup is. I kind of hoped that um, it was a different, bit different because we called it a roundtable. Because I wanted it also with someone on the fly, if some, you know, uh, I want everyone to be able to be involved. Um, right. And so basically, um, uh, then, uh, what was I going to say? We get in there. It's a regular setup. Um, and, uh, you know, they've got, you know, I realized that it was too weird to move everybody. We've got people on a stage. Um, the room wasn't conducive for a roundtable. Well, I saying? came in. And I realized, oh man, you can't really get away from that. Uh, I had had three podcasters come, which was amazing. I, that was another thing I did after I talked to the creators, and they all looked a little scared. To be quite honest, I mean, I would be scared too. Like, what is she talking about? Like, I don't. Um, and Marguerite talks about it. she didn't actually know the original panel. I was, you know, so you know, some knew of the original panel. Some it was just about sure. This sounds like a cool idea. Why not? You know, um, Megan was like, I've had four hours sleep, but all right, let's do this thing. <laughs> Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, so after I got everyone secured, I forgot, I actually went, I had one of the runners go with me and we talked to, uh, all the podcasters. We talked to, um, and it seemed, and real nerds, um, beyond the trope. And, uh, obviously we had bleeding cool already. that was going to um, do the audio. Um, and then we had another one to, um, come. And, uh, so they all, I knew it would be recorded. And I, so, you know, we all got down there. We realized, oh gosh, we have to stick with the mics. The mics are all on stage. And the stages are pretty small, those things. And sure. we had what I love is for um, the original, you know, panel had three guys, right? No women. <laughs> I've got all these women, <laughs> and I just start throwing them on stage. It was like um, we have to stick with the mics. I mean, I've got chairs upon chairs upon chairs, and they were all very cool. Um, and then they were like, "Aren't you going to sit and be with it?" I was like, "No." And then they started laughing, like, "Here I am, putting them in the hot seat," you know. But I realized, you know, in this scenario, I, I, I might write for comics in the future, but I really am a playwright. You know, I was really excited to moderate. Uh, and right before we went up, you know, Hannah thought she was going to moderate. I thought so too, but I kind of had this great idea. I was like, wait a minute. She represents the media. You know, sure. How great to have her perspective. Absolutely. And so, um, uh, so I had her be a part of the panel. Um, 
and uh, and I decided to moderate. I mean, moderating makes me very. You moderated the panel. I moderated the panel. Yeah. I had no idea. Go on. It was frightening to me. I I had uh, been forced to do this before, where um and a and a Fred um uh you know and uh, something with uh I think it was make comics like the pros. They didn't have a moderator, and so Fred asked me to do it, and I found it really scary. And with Hannah, I was like, just jump in, you know, like I knew she would moderate kind of within the panel, and I would kind of be you know right there um at the microphone. Um, so that's the way it. Uh, that's the way we went down, and I knew that the secret would be just kick off with an initial thing. I made all the audience come down, and I really wanted it to be a conversation. I wanted it to be very conversational. I knew they had a lot of questions. Um, I mean, that was the other thing. As I'm piling ladies up there, um, people were filing in, and I was scared and accelerated at the same time. It was a really full house. People heard. Now, let's keep in mind, people did not even know this was happening until 9 a.m. Maybe it was like 10 a.m. Um, Bleeding Cold did a post. Um, people were twittering about it like crazy. I actually went around and even if I saw cool women cosplayers, I would tell them about this panel. Like it was, it was grassroots, crazy town. Awesome. Like people were coming because they knew about it. Um, and, and, and they, you know, so they came armed with questions. Um, I did not want to focus on the past. I didn't want to focus on what did happen. I want to focus on the idea of what women in comics now means to people because also, you know, do people want to be pigeonholed? Do they not want to be pigeonholed? Do people like that conversation? Do they not like the conversation? What does that mean right. to them? And so we just opened up with that. And so it, it really led to this dynamic conversation. Um, and each of the women had really vast, wonderful, specific personal stories, including Hannah, which was great to hear from. Um, and Pam Steele was there as well. Um, she um, she had led um, some awesome panels there as well herself. And she was very instrumental. Um, and beyond the trope, um, her name is Emily. Um, she uh, she was a part of the um, Emily K. Singer. She was a part of it as well as a podcaster. So you had the media, you had creators, you had myself as kind of outsider that's you know written material dealing with you know comics, but but isn't actually in the industry. Um, and you had a lot of people with specific questions about. Um, just things that these creators have faced, what inspires them, what gets them up in the morning. And, and, you should, and I just hope everyone listens to it because the stories that came out of it were inspirational for anyone, you know? Um, sure. It's literally going around now, you know, uh, Trina at some point was like, well, do what you want, you know? I mean, Simon is good as she would say, and if not, fuck them, you know? And everyone's <laughs> like, oh my God. I mean, there, there were things being said here that were just so exhilarating and also you know, Amanda was talking so much about her humor and being funny and how much that meant to her. And just really, you know, you really got to know them. They were very intimate. Um, Marguerite actually said after, she was like, I didn't even realize I would I would get that deep in my stories. I kind of didn't want to go there. And I did. And it just happened. And I was like, that's so great. You know, because we just really kept it kind of like, um, you know, just again, here we are in this magic place in this magic time. Let's Let's share. And it was more about that rather than, you know, um, just a regular panel. It was very special. Okay. Well, and, and I noticed too in the description at Comics Alliance that and, – and this is something I always say to Kelly Sue DeConnick, which is – and, and I, I'm glad to hear that we're beyond square one of, hey, we want more yeah. women in comics. Yeah. Well, of course we want more women in comics. Yes. Yes, you know, they're part of the you're part of the audience, you're part of what's going on right now. What is the next step? And I appreciate that it seems like that was what was addressed or what do we all want? What you know, beyond okay, we're here now and we've got everybody's attention and I mean and you know, of course, are the are the publishers doing enough? Um, the big publishers are the opportunities there for for women. Um, are the women responding to these books and are they buying them? I mean, is is the next step? And obviously this is something that 
Marvel has certainly, you know, kind of made themselves known and, and, and had their products out there. DC is doing a little bit better. Once we get past these current events, things are going to open up even more and there are going to be more books written by and, and drawn by and about more women. But it's going to be this gestation period of actually really kind of looking at the market for the next 12 months, in addition to all the image books that are out there, what Kel's doing, everybody, Joelle, and all these, and all these people on their own, Lumberjanes and yeah, everything else. With these other- I love them. Sure. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, were, were those around the questions as well? I mean, you know, beyond breaking in, what, what were some of the other questions or things like that discussed? Um, that was uh, definitely all discussed. There was a lot about, um, a lot about actually um, not necessarily just knowing that it was going to be hard in general, which is, I think, a really great thing to acknowledge that sometimes we get right into the gender issue. And they, the ladies were really specific in their stories about um, – uh, it's hard, you know, it's hard to break in. It's hard to be new. It's hard to, um, be in the arts. It's hard to be a comic book artist and, you know, coming from that place as well, that, that, that everyone faces. Um, and so Amanda talked often like, well, she just knew it was going to be hard. So she couldn't really say whether it was harder for her as a woman or not. Um, because she knew it was going to be very, very difficult. And, you know, she says in her own words in a great way in the panel, um, there was a real sense of, um, now that they're, you know, working so hard on what they do, um, not so much an awareness of having trouble from the industry, which was really interesting, really cool to hear. Um, it was just, it was actually more about the reactions from, um, uh, retailers and stuff. You know, the idea of, you know, I think, I, I think the perception of women writing for comics is becoming exciting now and that's the ball we need to take and run with it. Um, and I think that, that perception issue seemed to come up, uh, for people. Um, Whereas you and I know that's inc- it's incredibly highly commercial and exciting, um, and it doesn't need to be pigeonholed either into necessarily women writing for comics or creating for comics. Um, it just is. Um, so that was exciting to hear, like that. You know, there's so much to still fight, and and Trina has a lot of great um, inspirational, um, you know, things for that on the panel. Um, and again, the audio is available, so I don't want to take necessarily yeah. too much from that. But I would say that there's the sense of you know, this is obviously something that's going to continue and is only going to grow. It's always been a part of our history. Um, and it's commercial and profitable and exciting. You know, that was my take from it um, and hearing good. them. And it's not unsimilar to the conversation with women in theater, you know. Um, yes. You know, yes. not similar at all. In terms of the readership, um, I don't know. I mean, I, we, you know, we didn't have statistics oh. there in terms of the, right. um, who's, who's reading my own perception of the industry is that just the retailers just need to keep being open and giving new things a chance. And I think that's really important. Um, And, you know, we're in very cosmopolitan and I don't mean to sound uh, hoity toity when I say this, but Chicago and, and New York, you know, we know that women come in the stores and the question is really the rest of the country and these more independent and kind of, island on their own retailers that really are across middle America and how much those retailers are listening and, and how much those women are able to make a difference. And I know there are groups like the Valkyries and I'm sure that came up in the conversation in terms of uh, store uh, people that are assisting and kind of pointing uh, women to good books, not just men, by the way, not just women's books, but just good books in general. And, and so that's a really important force. And yeah, ultimately, the question that I have for DC and Marvel moving forward is, it, you know, uh, and what we're going to have to see really in the next 12 months is 
what kind of market reaction there is and what their line of this is still a profitable book, book and we can still run with it, what that number is, because it is a more diverse market these days. Image has taken a big bite out of the big two. And uh, both DC and Marvel, as much as they experiment and try new things, they still have a profitability line that image creators don't have to worry about, that Boom, Dark Horse, and some of the smaller publishers don't have to worry about. And, or, and whether that's artificial or truly, hey, we've got a budget – and that's part of the big picture. And you know, if uh, you know the Adventures of Invisible Woman don't, don't you know make it beyond fifteen thousand copies a month, well, we can't afford to put this book out anymore. You know, there's those kinds of things that it's an interesting choice that they're going to have to make, and and truly have to decide if uh, what kind of gestation period they're willing to give, because you you can't by the same token just be like, all right, well, hey, here's your chance, ladies. And you got a 12-month window, and well, sorry, we tried. I, I don't know. I mean, I can understand big business, you know, uh, we, we got to make our money. But I also think that it would be stupid for, after all the demands that I think are fairly being put upon publishers to put more product out there, they've got to respond, and I think they've got to they've do it for the long haul. Ms. Marvel is kicking ass right now, and that's a great book. Captain Marvel is doing really well. Uh, you know, A-Force just came out last week, and some of the things tied to – uh, Marvel's events. DC, we'll see what happens in, well, starting Mar- in June. Marguerite has so many... Yes. Oh my god, she's changing the landscape. She's actually changing the landscape. When I heard what she was doing on the panel, um, because I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a geek writer, but you know, I'm, I'm getting to know as much about them in some ways. You know, I know some of their books, but I was floored when she was saying some of the work she was doing, um, as well with Amanda, too, on, um, on Harley Quinn. Uh, just uh, the idea that she's not Joker's sidekick, she's her own character. Really cool takes um, that, again, are changing the landscape. They're just different ideas. I've got Brian Christman. Uh, he's known as Pants from Comic Geek Speak. <laughs> Pants, to bring you up to speed, you know, we were talking about uh, the, you know, both the panel itself, but the big question that's coming up with DC and Marvel, what they're going to do post-event, and what does this mean for the market? Like how long do DC and Marvel allow these new books to find their audience? Yeah. You, you, yeah, it, it is, it is tough. There's so many, I'm not reading many of the DC. In fact, I'm reading no DC books right now. I just got tired of their, uh, their new relaunch. I could give it a try, but with Marvel. Yeah, you're right. Uh, like for instance, I, I really like the Electra book and okay. that didn't last very long at all. I mean, it's already, it's already ending. So, yeah, that's always a tough decision. There's so many new ideas out there and fighting for attention. How long do you give a book? That is a good question. I mean, it, it's tough because the lag time between the first issue hitting stands and then the by that time you're already publishing three or four down the road. How do you gauge the interest? That That is a tough thing. I'm glad I'm not in their shoes for that. Well, and further pants, because another thing Crystal and I were talking about, too, was, you know, Crystal's in New York. I'm in Chicago. You're in Reading, Pennsylvania. So this is really kind of a, a question where you are a little further away from a bigger city. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing in your in the stores around you more of an effort to get women into into the stores with these new books, the Lumberjanes and some of the other image books and other publishers. But uh, yeah, I mean, are, are you seeing it in these middle American kind of uh, stores, the, this effort to get more women in the stores? Uh, not so much. The local store that I'm from most familiar with, Golden Eagle Comics, of course, their plan for the longest time has been to 
order books to to sell out. They don't necessarily look at bring sure. in readers. That, that's their their business model, and you know it works well. They've been around for twenty some years. Um, I'm not in there enough to to know if they actually are you know engaging the 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 public, trying to get new readers. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's tough when you have that kind of business model because we are you know outside uh, Philadelphia by about an hour and a half, so we're not really like you mentioned you know. in in the big cities there where there's a lot more foot traffic in there. I understand, and so yeah, so there you go, Chris. And that's one of the reasons why when I saw Pants was online, I'm like, oh, I I wanted to kind of get his his thoughts on that too. Yeah, I know. Only know you know it's so. This is a fascinating point, and it's something that, uh, you know, in terms of the comic book stores, because I feel like I've only been going to the cool city ones. Like, in terms of cool, I mean, sure, like, sure. they feel like a happening. You know what I mean? It feels yeah, like yeah. almost like an art store, you know, like an yeah, NDC in New York, you know, wherever we've, um, Chicago, L.A., you know. So these are the, you know, San Francisco, um, Boston. So I feel like, um, so it's, 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 um, very gender inclusive, I think, in those yes. places. Um, you know, just my experience, you know, I am definitely an outsider to this. I, I do feel like, you know, retailers don't necessarily take a chance on ordering things. And, and, the, and um, you know, I think that that is where it is difficult because I think they, you know, <laughs> how do you how do you embrace the new without giving the new a chance? You know, so I think that Absolutely. there, there's definitely that communication, which I think has to probably affects all genders. I assume like anything that's, that's just different, you know, and how do you feature that? Um, and how do you, you know, get people behind it and get people excited? Um, there you go. Yeah. I have a question about how much time, you know, for something to be new yeah. and, and to take hold, it does need time. It definitely needs time. Well, that's why. And I mean, in the case of the the uh, image creators, they can go out and try and solicit themselves and literally go Johnny Applesuit one store at a time. And there are there is enough of a community of inclusive stores out there that they can do, uh, you know, and get enough stores to to make their books profitable. But, yeah, I, I really do wonder when it comes to DC and Marvel and they've got their gigantic lines of books and I mean, it's just always been business as usual. Of okay, well, the bottom ten percent aren't selling well. It's time to try something different. And the question is, when we reach that point, do they replace them with more books still trying to aim towards that audience? I mean, that's the thing. We're really at the start of this thing, and I don't want it to. I, I hope people don't, you know, construe that I'm against it. I, I, I am for it. I think uh, more diverse. Uh, comic book selection only means you're going to get many more interesting stories and ideas out there, obviously. But that's the thing. I, I It's going to be very, very interesting. I think it's a hell of a tightrope to walk and uh, I, I'm going to be very I'll be very interested to watch specifically DC and Marvel given their size and how, how much time they put in this and, and, and we'll see. Uh, it, and and I, hope, I hope that they give it plenty of time and these books find their audiences and we just have a more diverse and richer... Uh, you know, comic book marketplace as, as a result. We, you know, I think, John, it's also about pushing for commitment, you know, like, um, you know, in theater, you know, we, we have to push for, for making sure diversity, you know, happens. And um, yes. we're, we, we still, you know, um, have plays on Broadway with mostly white casts and we're, you know, you know, there you go. struggle. And um, but the only way to do it is that the readership and the people involved in those communities are so excited they keep. Um, bringing up authenticity and, and call for this. I think what's important, John, is that they, 
um, not to recede back to the old, just because it's progress, you know, these kinds of, there's no way to tell a modern, modern story and not have it be diverse. There's no way to do it and not have a, a main woman character and, and non-white characters or a non-white character that could be the lead. There's just no way to, to be in the modern world and not embrace the, Like if you're writing stuff that's happening now, there's just no way to, to do that. I know we've dealt with, and we're dealing with iconic characters in some cases. Um, but certainly with the news stories, you know, I mean, um, you know, if you don't, if you're, if that's not in your storytelling, it's, it doesn't really work. <laughs> you're actually sure. being kind of inauthentic, you know? So, um, so I think it's up to the readership and the audience and hopefully the retailers that are that excited to, to kind of push for all of this, um, and encourage the, the larger companies to keep taking those risks and not to go back, you know, superheroes seems like they always fall back to, to the norm. You know, I was even in another panel where someone was referring to, woman characters and just mentioned Catwoman and, you know, Batgirl and, and that Trina, of course, is on that panel. Trina was like, Oh, try harder, you know, but what she, <laughs> what she meant by that is, you know, there's just, there's, there's, and she obviously has a vast wealth of knowledge in her head, but we all, we all kind of do, you know, I mean, um, it's, it, the icons are wonderful, but the, the icons were meant to be played with, you know, and, um, and, and the new stories are great. So I just think, you know, I mean, maybe the greatest thing that Stanley ever did, did was ever say that the fans have power and they do have power. Um, sure the do. fans, the fans can push this conversation to always be going forward because they buy the books, you know. So the panel itself is recorded. Where is it being hosted? Where can people download the podcast yes. and then hear? Right this? now, it's on Beyond the Trope. Uh, tropes. Beyond the Tropes. Okay. Emily K. Singer runs that, which is wonderful, and she got that up right away. And I think she's going to um, be writing even more about it. It is definitely um beyond the trope actually and then the okay. real nerds are going to be putting out um the audio as well in the future and bleeding cool is going to be writing something about it um but i think spreading the word about you know um the idea the power of if you feel different than the conversation that's happening before you um have the conversation change it um to me that's what the panel meant um and it, it engaged in a lot of um possibilities and got people together and got their minds excited about creating new exciting comics by, by these creators sharing who were women sharing their own experiences and creating comics. And so I I felt like there were a lot of minds in the room that, you know, might go out and create their own new things or report on them in a different way. Um, and that was very exciting. Did the, uh, did the discussion at the panel ever get into, uh, what happened at Calgary, um, with, there, because there is this conservative voice that uh, is going against the grain of what uh, a lot of the women uh, that are being represented in these panels are the, the kind of women's comics that they are looking for. Did any of that conversation come up in this? No, panel? that didn't actually come up at all. But that sounds like a fascinating conversation to have. Well, and that's you know that's the thing. I'm glad that Denver was pliable enough, literally, to make room for this thing to happen. And I really think the whole thing that happened at the at the Calgary Arts Festival was unfortunate. And where I think uh, what you guys did in, in creating this flash panel might have been a more inclusive and and positive way of approaching this was to you know go to the guys running the programming and saying, hey, this this should happen. Let's find a way of doing this. And and you guys were able to do that. You lady, you women were able to do that. I say, guys, you know what I, I mean. I think that's, uh, that's the thing, too, that was cool about, you know, the, you know, it was just one of those things where it reminds you, just tell the truth. You know, just be who you are. And, yeah. You know, um, we all had a different way of doing that. Um, 
but it was, you know, it's respected, you know, it was like, you know, um, for me, I'm always thinking about, which is funny why I, you know, wrote King Kirby with Fred, you know, I'm always thinking about what's next. It mattered less to me that there was a mistake or oversight as much as here's an opportunity. Like we, okay. out of this, we can build something really exciting and, and, and have a great conversation and that will be forward thinking. Um, and I, it was you know, it was fun to engage in the conversation like that, too, where, where, where Christopher could also and, you know, the Denver Comic Con people could say, oh, man, you know, this went wrong. How did it go wrong? And I was like, how we can use the people we have here today? Like, you know, and that says nothing about Kevin either. You know, he's he's probably a great guy. You know what I mean? Like doing his thing. Um, so I, I think that um, it's all about circumstance, you know, and it's all about using the circumstances you're in. So that, that's what I found so inspiring about about that is that it was a reminder that speak up and um, people will listen if you, if you, if you tell the truth and it was a very clear truth. There are women that felt um, that they wanted their stories told. There are women that wanted to hear it. And that was the cool thing about the audience that came. My God, there was, God, there was, I mean, it was 50, 50 in that audience, if not more men even like, I mean, it was just an awesome cross, you know, every, every, right. everyone of, you know, such a diverse audience. It was such a cool experience. Um, and the stories got really awesome because they were about the acts of creation and how they happened. And um, and that was what's really fun about it is that they, they had that opportunity to, to hear these women talk about what, what jazzes them. And that's what was exciting. Well, part of the reason why uh, I wanted you on was to uh, – and to do it in a podcast was to hopefully hear about it directly and, and also to direct people to the uh, the recording of the panel itself, which is available at Beyond the Trope. And uh, Real Geeks, and as we say, we'll, we'll watch uh, for uh, Bleeding Cool's coverage to see uh, when they post it. And uh, that's great. No, I appreciate that. And, and seriously, I know you got, you got dinner guests, so I want you to get back to, 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 to your evening and everything. And I don't want to mess you up, Crystal. But I uh, – no, thank you. And, thank, and that, that's awesome. I, I congratulate you and Trina and, and uh, Hannah and uh, everyone, Megan and, and, and Marguerite and all that uh, you know got this thing going and, and – uh, righted the wrong in in the best way, and really gave the Denver Con attendees what they wanted, and that's the whole point of this programming at conventions is really to give them the entertainment they're looking for, but also the information that they might be looking for yes. too. And it sounds like you guys succeeded. That was beautiful. Bruce actually came. Bruce was there for the panel, and um, he he said that right before he said, "This is what we want. This is what we want." Excellent. You know, and um, you know. And you can look to the past, and, and, and certainly that's there. And I think they make some really compelling articles. I think it's wonderful to investigate how that happened as well. But I also thought, man, it's not every day, too, that the, you, know, you go to someone and they also say, let's do something about it. I mean, that's, that, that floored me. I was really – because I, yeah. I was ready for the radical. Like, I was ready for the, like, let's be in the lobby. No one gave us a room. Like, I was, you know, I was ready for – just being a renegade. And I was so floored by that. And, uh, it was just really cool that the whole community, I think that also comes out of love for the art, you know, form. Absolutely. There's a great love for the art form and it, and it, and it rose above everything else. Well, and I know that that really was one of the things that the Denver con in particular has been founded on was to really be there for the community and to represent comics in the most positive ways and and you know have interesting programming that benefits the attendees and 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 moves the the art forward and i do think it's important to acknowledge where we came from because you know history you don't how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been so it's it's important to have that but but like you said i think you you guys righted that 
um, oversight. And that's the thing. You know, I, I, again, I always, I always quote Kelly Sudaconic because she's right. We're all evolving. I'm sure that yep. that panel, that initial panel was done with the best of intentions and, and that they thought they were doing a good thing here. And they were to a degree, but you guys kind of were like, yeah, but hey, uh, you got Trina Robbins here. You got all yep. these creators that are making stuff now. Let's really give people the opportunity to see where they can go as opposed to just where they've been. So that's and the one, nice. the one big lesson I would say from that, you know, because again, I wasn't in the original panel, was, was simply like, you know, um, and, and Trina responded to this right away when she heard, you know, I'm here, you know, I'm right down the street, do your research, you know, I'm right here down yeah. the aisle. Um, there's never, you know, whatever you're doing, you, you, the creators are, are there for you outreach, you know, like if you're, um, talking about a subject you feel passionate about and you feel like you need more authenticity and, you, and who doesn't, um, uh, write them, um, go to the booth next to them, ask them to be involved, you know, um, and that was just something that for some reason didn't happen here. And, um, it is something we hear in, in theater as well. And I talk a little bit about that on the panel, which is probably why I felt so passionate about this is that sometimes you do hear from artistic directors like oh, I don't know where the women are you know you hear this a lot and 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 you're like well they're everywhere <laughs> and they're ready yeah. plays and I don't know there's Lynnottage and she wrote Ru- something called Ruined and you know like there's Carol Churchill and you know you know it's like there's all these people um there's Susan Laurie Parks um you know you've heard of these women <laughs> um and and behind them is all their all the people that have studied with them you know and uh uh, so, I mean, uh, so the same thing here is was happening in comics. I was hearing the same kind of argument. And, and what that simply means is I don't hang out with these people. And I don't hang out with these people is different than, like, why don't I call them up and ask them to be involved, you know? I mean, you don't have to hang Absolutely. out with them, but you certainly should, if you're that passionate, know these people, um, or at least on some kind of uh, level. And so I think that that's really important. Um, and it's it's actually a little bit more, based on the panel, I felt that theater was actually becoming a little bit more evolved perhaps than comics in that area a uh, comics is definitely making an, an achievement but um right now there are whole theater season seasons to get dedicated to women something interesting happened there it became markability uh they realized that they could use it as you know pr and uh i think that's great it's more commercial and it, i think that john if we stick with it i think that's what's going to happen with the comics too this is a commercial move absolutely no absolutely and well and like i said i mean uh, we're at the beginning, so we'll we'll see how it plays out. But I do think that the opportunity is there for the, this to go in the right direction, and I do think it'll only grow as all of these new areas of comics have grown in even the last you know ten or fifteen years. I mean, the you know the image explosion has benefited all of us, and I do think that uh, you know it's benefited a lot of women creators, and and as have web comics as well. And that uh, opportunities like yeah. these panels and stuff are only going to make, make more and as you guys are out there telling your stories of how you're making your geek co- content and everything, you're only going to inspire more women to move forward. So yeah, and I was super inspired. I mean, for me, I you know uh, again, I've written a play about uh, a comic book icon, you know, and I've said a play at a comic book convention, but these are the women actually doing it, you know, and it was sure. it was uh, really cool to to moderate and just kind of be there as a helpful, supportive hand, um, and very much in awe of these legends, you know. I'm not surprised. Well done, Crystal Skillman. I like it. Very cool. Thanks for the update, and well done. Great to meet you, Pants. (laughs) Nice to meet you as well, Crystal. (laughs) Awesome. That's Crystal Skillman and a little bit of Pants. We'll get more Pants later in the program. But uh, I have listened to the Women in Comics panel from Denver Comic-Con since, and uh, it's great. And I do recommend you listen to it. Um, Just some quick observations. Comparing 
Joelle Jones's experience to Amanda Connors to Trina Robbins. Contrasting stories of inclusion and exclusion from family and fellow fans and colleagues. Really interesting, and uh, you kind of get the cross spectrum of experiences, which is really great to see that you know that kind of diversity of story. So I really recommend you listen to this. And uh, Beyond the Tropes has it. I also think you should read Hannah's article at Bleeding Cool about the panel and compare her point of view to it to uh, Crystal's uh, explanation of how the panel happened and also the observations of, of how the panel went. Um, very interesting. Let's keep the conversation going now with Hillary Barda. And as I said, Hillary, uh, you know from Scene Missing and uh, his recent appearances on Word Balloon, uh, not only talking movies, but of course his own work. And I had him on uh, last September for Cincy Comic Con, and also we've played a, a, a trivia game uh, with Hill live. But uh, this time we're talking about a couple books that he has coming out in June. And uh, good to check in. We don't do much movie talk, but we do do classic TV talk. You can't help it. We love the we love the reruns. We're all about the black and white reruns. So uh, here's Hillary Barda in a quick conversation now on Word Balloon. All right, folks, he's back. It's Hillary Barda, the uh, scene missing veteran that is uh, back for a, a new Word Balloon. It's just me and Hill though tonight. And you know, I got to be honest. So I'm I'm finding that um, it's hard with my schedule to like get three people on a, on a call and stuff. So uh, as I can tell you from the Art and Franco oh yeah, podcast that we are like down to like monthly episodes. So uh, it's tough. But uh, anyway, it's good to have you on. Welcome back. I'd rather have three women anyway. I mean, three men <laughs> on a horse. That's, uh, that's an old joke. It's got to be bad luck unless you're the Stooges. Yeah. That's, that's three on a match, bad. three on men on a horse. I, know, yeah. I always feel bad for those from the silent movies and a lot of two-reeler comedies and stuff. When they find those horses that have... Like I don't know if they're broken backs, but they've literally got like halfway slope, through their spine. They're kind of the yes. yeah, yes. What the hell is going on? Well, that like, guy's in a horse suit, John. Come on, haven't you caught on by no, now? No, it, it really isn't. Now, come on. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure they had crippled just... animals that they yeah. <laughs> Jesus, they're like yeah. Dr. Seuss animals. They curve the wrong way, you know. Exactly, yeah. and I wonder if there's like Bob's crippled like animal ranch or whatever they get. Yeah, we got a few over here. Don't worry about it. Oh, well, when they run out of them, they just cripple another one, you know. It's, those are go. the days hey. before animal protection. I was going to say, Peter's on line four already complaining about this podcast, but that's okay. Uh, at the end of every movie, they would say, actual an- animals were injured <laughs> during the and making that, of this yeah, motion exactly. Oh, no, yeah, exactly. What are you talking about? Leo McCary is out there with, like, a sledgehammer breaking backs on horses and stuff. Poor man. Yeah, let's blame Leo McCary. <laughs> a good Christian <laughs> man. So, anyway... Yeah. You know why I bring up Liam McCary here now? Well, because of the Three Stooges, of course, right? No? Yeah, no, I don't know if he did Three Stooges stuff. No, but, yeah, um, he did. He 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 was yeah, he was one of the early directors. Yeah, I had no idea that the um, well, I know Laurel and Hardy, and that's what I was. Oh, you know what? Actually, that's who I was thinking of. Hey, okay, I think I just had my first senior moment. Do you have a bell to ring somewhere? Ding of the of the phone call here. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, uh, Billy Crystal and Josh Gad have a, a new show on FX called the comedians and on the most recent episode uh crystal takes him to the park where they've got or that that famous uh run of stairs that laurel and hardy yep. use in music box mm-hmm. and um and yeah and i and I, I don't know if that's you know i i remember seeing the, those stairs when i was a little kid and went to los angeles and stuff so uh i know i i have seen those stairs i have but seen it was, stairs before <laughs> 
I have, I don't think I've seen that many at one time. Though I did, re- I do remember walking up to the top of I don't know if it was a uh, lighthouse, and uh, it was. Uh, this is a completely unrelated story, but this will be the first of many tangents that go nowhere. That this is the word balloon show, so go on. But uh, you know, it had wrought iron. These sort of like like, and, and they always have holes in them. They kind of you know, they're whatever. They're just they're metal stairs, but then. You can look down, in other words, and you can see it's a spiral staircase that goes up to the top of this thing. And I was terribly afraid of heights, and I, I still have some of that. But I, I remember, like, well, this isn't going well. I mean, you know, once you once you realize you can look down, you just keep doing it. And um, yeah, was this in L.A. or was this in? Oh, it's uh, nothing. Like I said, this is nothing. Oh, to do yeah. These are just stairs in a lighthouse. I don't know how many lighthouses right. there are in L.A. There maybe there are some. I don't know. I don't know. All right, there we go. Very good. Uh, I'm just talking about stairs. Do you want me to talk about stairs? <laughs> we can talk about what stairs meant to Alfred Hitchcock, you know. There you go. No, I uh, oh. like I said, Leo McCary made me think of Laurel and Hardy, and therefore the, the stairs that they showed in the uh, in the comedians. Um, what, and yeah, hang he, on, hang on, John. What, what is going on? What are you doing? It's on my back. Okay, why don't you sit down, okay? Please sit down. John, I'll get back to you in one second. Sure, no problem. Uh, oh, he's doing no worries, crazy man. thing. Oh, my God. Okay, we're back. No problem. No worries. All good. All right. Um, well, anyway, stairs aside, let's uh, let's get uh, to a couple books that are coming out for you next month. So so that's cool. Let's start with uh, you got you got uh, work in the SpongeBob Annual coming up. Yes, I just uh, I just did a story uh, for the SpongeBob Annual, which gosh, I don't think it, I can't remember these things. The title of this thing is is like a mile long. Anyway, I think it's almost like a joke. Um, it's the what the heck do they call it? It's the SpongeBob Comics annual size super giant swimtacular. So there, it just rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. Excellent. What is the uh, focus of your story? Well, it's a science fiction issue, but it's specifically science fiction dystopian futures. So the, it, it, all the stories, including mine, I believe, or at least several of them, focus on bikini bottoms, you know, <laughs> alternate futures that aren't going so well. And I do the uh I do a Mermaid Man story and Mermaid Man Excellent. Yeah, he's he's essentially um you know, back to the future kind of thing or you know whatever, but it's time travel. But fish people from the future uh the future bikini bottom arrive in, in the present day or, you know, Mermaid Man's present day, which I think is the, supposed to be the nineteen sixties in the comic book within a comic book universe mm-hmm. that is Mermaid Man and SpongeBob, if you're following kids. In any case, so the fish people from the year 30,000 or whatever, which I can even tell you the actual year, arrive. Um, it's from the year 39,606. And that's because the name of the story is Mermaid Man, 39,606 A.D. And it's written by Derek Dryman. And anyway, they come and they take him back to the future and uh, comedy ensues because he's there to save them from some unknown, uh, unknown attacker. And, uh, Oh, nice. Uh, and it, wow. Very, uh, very Hal Jordan, uh, uh, Green Lantern back in the sixties when, uh, he used to go to the year 5,000 mm-hmm. and, and solve problems in the future. In the Today. year 5,000. Exactly. Or Zager and Evans, if you want to do 25-25. I, I promise I won't sing again during this uh, podcast. 
John, the, the story, though, being the science fiction issue, I mean, when I got, I remember it being pitched to me by my editor, uh, uh, and, and he was like, hey, Hillary, you can do all kinds of Hollywood science fiction, you know, buildings and stuff, and, and you know, spaceships awesome. and whatnot, and I'm like, ooh, I just heard Wally Wood, and I was there, because he's one of my favorite artists. And, here, here. Yeah. And when I think of science oh fiction God. and comics, I really do think of Wood first. I, I, I don't know what's second, but Wood is always first. No, I, you know, as I look in my apartment, um, my, my two favorite sketch pieces I have are uh, Gabe Hardman did a uh, Captain Comet that is definitely more space opera than superhero in its, uh, the, the uniform that he chose. And right underneath it, Chris Somney did a Dan Dare. Mm. Granted, that's British and stuff, but I mean, there is that kinship between the Dan Derek spacesuit and the Wood spacesuit, and I do see a lot of similarities in British science fiction comics with the Wood influence. And I don't know, I you know, everyone knows that a lot of American comics would wind up in England as ballast for ships and things, yeah. and I, I don't, I assume that <laughs> ballast, EC stuff might have been literally is ballast, literally right, yeah, literally, yeah, bundles of yeah, bundles of just you know waste that was there for weight distribution and everything. So, you know, that's how a lot of comic books wound up on uh, across the pond and everything. So I don't know if Wally Wood stuff was, you know, seen that way or not, but it seems like Dan Dare had that kind of Wally Wood influence to it. I don't know if you've ever noticed the comparison. Uh, well, I, yeah, I don't know if I drew it directly to Wood, but I see Wood across the board influencing, you know, pretty much science fiction, if not a lot of comics, inking and drawing in general. But both, you know, both artists in England and in the States who were doing comics in the 50s and beyond and, you know, 40s even, they were influenced by the pulps. And most sure. of the visual stuff that we have in science fiction comes from the pulps. I mean, that's where it started. That's the origin of it all. And, and I, think, sure. I think that's where Wood's primary influences were, as, as well as the early science fiction comic strips, you know, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers over here and that kind of stuff. So I'm, did he ever do like? A, I mean, I know he did a ton for EC, and um, I mean, you really correct me. Like, was he ever on a regular sci-fi series like a Tommy Tomorrow or a you know a Dan Dare or whatever? Oh, uh, regular series. Wood did a, Wood did a lot of science fiction stuff, but what he did is, I mean, you think about he did the he did the uh, the spirit, the comic, you know, insert right in yes. outer space. Yes, and yes, that went absolutely. On, that went on for the run of that storyline. He, right. he did. Um, he did. Uh, what, what, I forgot what about it. Um, what was the thing he did? Was it Challengers of the Unknown with Kirby? He inked that. Okay, was that or was that um, Wally or was that Bob? I, I never. I'm never sure. Because wasn't there a Bob Wood as well? That was, that was Wally an artist. Wood. Wally Wood. Okay, because yeah. and there was a further Kirby sci-fi thing that used to get confused with Wally Wood, and that was Sky Pirates. And Wood did not work on Sky Pirates with Kirby. I, you know, I haven't. I don't even. I'm not. Terribly familiar with Sky Pirates, but um, Challengers. I'm pretty sure it's Challengers. Am I right? I mean, okay. I'm getting that right. I'm, we could, we could, well, we could look it up while we're yeah, talking. Maybe yeah, Challengers of the Unknown I mean, was a different DC comic. Now I'm starting to have one senior moment after another. This is getting ridiculous. But, no, I'm um, just you know, like I well, like I said, and uh, mostly they are you know he was known for like I you know his EC stuff and yeah. um, but uh, and that's why I'm I'm just not sure. It's like Frazetta. So much of Frazetta stuff was like. Oh man, hey, you know he did a ton of John Wayne comics, and it's like you know those those uh, Fiction House and Nader and some of those other '40s and '50s publishers, Crest Crestwood and that that didn't make it, you know, beyond the '50s. St. John's, 
some of these publishers and stuff, and I just wasn't sure if Wood was one of those guys as well, or if he did, you know, yeah. beyond C, latch on to, like, yeah, like you said, a regular series. I had totally forgotten, you're, you're right, uh, the, the Spirit Space story, that's awesome. Right. But Challengers of the Unknown, uh, you know, Kirby definitely worked on that at DC, and... Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. Yep. No, you are correct. But Dave Wood is the, is the name, but... Um, I'm, it's gonna it's gonna kill me. You you want to look it up? I'm terrible at looking at this stuff. I'll, multitasking, talking to you while while working no on the problem. computer is not gonna work for me. But well, but there's, well, they well, did we, a different. They did a comic strip that would right. That's sky. That's I want to say Sky Masters. Well then, yeah, Woodring Woodring that. But that's what it is. Yeah, why did I think it was Challengers? I thought it was. I, uh, okay, let's just but edit no, all this out. Right. No, you're right about. You're right about. Um, Whatchamacall, uh, Wally were inking Jack on Challenges of the Unknown. I just confirmed that. Um, spy, and here I've got, the, I've got the right story. Sky Masters was written by Dave and Dick Wood, and then Jack uh, penciled it. So that's like the fourth Wood in this conversation, because there's somebody named Tom Wood involved in Challengers. <laughs> Oy vey. Yeah, thank oh, God Ed Wood you- didn't direct any of these. Dave. Do- All right, now I'm looking up Don Wood to see uh, comics. You know, I, I as we're talking about older creators, um, I never knew that, and I'm guessing that maybe Tex Blaisdell might have gotten his nickname from a Bob and Ray character that, like, they created that had nothing to do with the inker of comic books, Tex Blaisdell, and former uh, Kubert School uh, teacher. But if uh, people don't know who we're talking about, Tex Blaisdell was an inker that worked with Kurt Swan when it wasn't Murphy Anderson, for example, or somebody else on Superman during the uh, late 70s. So there's another name that has nothing to do with the woods. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just putting it out there for there you. There you go. <laughs> uh, Don Woods. Uh, no, Don Wood is. Uh, I see an indie Don Wood. No, I just. Okay. Anyway. I, since I mentioned him, it says here. You know, it, you're right, it's Dave Wood. Yep. Okay. Never mind. No, all good. No, but you're right He's about the Wally. Creator of Challengers, yeah, Dave Wood. Dave Wood, oh, Don Wood. I mean, come on. Did, you know? uh, Dave Wood also did do Challengers. Is this what you're saying? It says the that. character's provenance is uncertain. Various sources. This is Wikipedia. I'm reading here. Mm-hmm. Everything's right on Wikipedia. Various sources credit the group as the sole creation of artist and storyteller Jack Kirby. A co-creator, comma, a co-creator with writer Dave Wood, or a co-creation with Kirby's former partner, Joe Simon. So this is some matter mm-hmm. of dispute here, at least as far as Wikipedia ah. is concerned. Let's just say well, Kirby a, created it, okay? Sure, but from a timing standpoint, uh, Wood and Kirby were also doing Skymasters right. as the syndicated newspaper strip. Right. And that's kind of neat. No, I, I'm fascinated by that whole period of adventure strips in, in general. Mm-hmm. And I know that goes off of the Wally Wood reservation that we were on. But, um, you know, I, Rip, there's a new Rip Kirby uh, edition that just came out this uh, last week from IDW. And I pour over those. And uh, I love Big uh, – it was is it Big, Big Ben Bolt, mm-hmm. the boxing uh, feature that John Cullen Murphy did? And uh, – you know, I, I just love, like, a lot of the adventure strips and everything. And that's another thing that Somni and I, when we get together, we always talk about is how much we love just how beautiful a lot of those those strips were. And, I mean, these are, like, you know, the second-tier ones compared to, you know, obviously the, the Kniff and, you know, some of the other well, greats. Was, that... and, and I actually am a pretty uh, 
you know, it's not just senior moments. I'm not as fluent in comic <laughs> strips as I am in books. And okay, and I I have gaping holes in my knowledge of both subjects, but they're, they're much bigger in the comic strips. So, so you know, talk to youngsters like Chris Samney who never has the senior moment, and he knows what he's talking about anyway. I'm, no, no. So, and uh, I had no idea you were telling me that another book that you've got coming out next month is. Um, uh, I, I didn't realize that we were about to have another Mars Attacks uh, revival, which, good God, man, I love those trading cards, and I loved when Topps did the series back in the 90s, and uh, well, think, it's great. I mean, yeah, IDW has got the license, and it's had it for a while. I don't know how many series yes. they've done, but they, they did they did a few books. I, maybe it was on hiatus. Yeah, a couple years ago. Maybe it's been on – there's been a, been a, a, you know, a lull in publishing, but – They've this. What this is is yet another science fiction issue. I mean, the annual SpongeBob annual was, was it has a science fiction theme. And, and by the way, it's, it's the lineup of that. There's some great, great people. Oh yeah, by all means, no tell. tell no, I mean, well, tell. I can uh, let me give you that at the end. I'll, I'll go research okay. the whole thing and give you some more names. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> I don't know. Actually, don't know everyone involved, but uh, you know, I know a few of the people. Uh, sure. For instance. Uh, <clears throat> Senior moment number 513, no. Um, Ramona Fraden, who is one of the, the few artists that have drawn Plastic Man. Uh, there's a small oh, yeah. small club of us, but she's one of the one of the first after after DC picked up the character again. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I love her work, and just about everybody who loves Plastic Man or comics loves, loves her, but she's terribly under-recognized. Uh, she's still around, she's still, you know, drawing, and they... And she still contributes to SpongeBob comics because they love her there. Anyway, she's that's doing the framing story, and that's one of the reasons okay. I'm so excited to be in there because I'm going to be in there with one of my heroes. And here, yeah, here, it's really cool. Have you met her? I have. You know, I mean, you go to San Diego. She's there pretty much every year, yes. uh-huh. and she sits at her table in Artist Alley. And unfortunately, there isn't a line to the table for Ramona Fraden uh, like there is for some young hotshot artist. But I go up and say hi and buy a page off her. And, and I know Andrew Peepoy was telling me he went and talked to her, uh, you know, sometime over the last several years. And and then he said, you know, are you doing anything for dinner? And he took her out to dinner. And I just love hearing stories like that. Where, Absolutely. You know, and he just kind of had no. this thought that, gee, maybe she, you know, maybe she really doesn't have an entourage with her like you would assume she might. I met her a couple times, both in San Diego and uh, at New York shows, and I bought a Metamorpho mm. page from her because, of course, she's the co-creator of Metamorpho. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it's funny. Now that you say that, I better make sure that I've got money set aside, <laughs> and I think I will make a point of buying another piece from her because my great regret, and God forbid uh-huh. anything terrible happens, but much in the same way, like you said, there wasn't a big line for Jerry Robinson the last year I saw him at San Diego. Yeah. I did have the money and he wasn't asking for a lot but I could have gotten an original Batman sketch from Jerry Robinson if I had just a little more scratch and uh, I, you know I gotta I gotta see if I could scrape together enough to like get something cool from Ramona because I've always wanted an Aquaman piece from oh her. I mean and she in there online you can see the sketches she's done for people calling them sketches yeah. is yes. really you know it doesn't do them justice like many artists she just puts a lot of work she's a perfectionist and she just does these lovely drawings? They're really gorgeous. So well, much, much like yourself, Phil. I'll say it, and I know that's not where you were going. But no, honestly, I know this for a fact. I one of my best pieces is your Swamp Thing that you did uh, 
a couple Februarys ago at uh, at a at a event for the Hero Initiative at, and at, stuff. Oh yeah, comics, right? Exactly in Skokie, absolutely, man. So no, and I and no, I agree with you. I mean, uh, it's a it is a pencil thing. It's kind of like what Colin and also Mike Grell do in terms mm-hmm. of really finished illustration. Even though in the cases of the stuff that I was looking at from Fraden, yeah. it, it were they were pencil I think, sketches, I think but that's they were difficult. Yeah, that she does she does pencil sketches. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Absolutely. No, I love her. Well, She's the, amazing. The page I bought from her last time in San Diego was, I'm not going to remember the book, but it was one of those DC horror, whatever, mystery. They're kind of tamed by horror standards because this is the 1960s, the comics code, you know, in effect. Sure. But it was a story. A story well, I didn't actually buy the Michael, Michael Fleischer page. She had a, She had a few different pages and, and she was we ended up talking about Michael Fleischer who's pretty famous and or infamous in comic circles for certain things. Yep. Uh but it was really great to talk to her because I'm looking at a particular page and there was a lot of white out in this one panel in particular and that led to our conversation about it. But it was because they had to edit out white out, they had to remove things she had drawn that were in the script that were too horrible and certainly wouldn't have passed the comics code. Wow. And I, in fact, I think it was a horse going into a meat grinder. Wow. Being, you know, literally turned into a glue in some sort of, you know, made up machine or whatever, but it was, it was going in one end and coming out as the gunk in the other. And this is, you know, and, and she, she was telling me she would work with this and she kind of was like rolling her eyes talking about the scripts because she had several scripts from him. And she would talk to her editor like, I can't really draw this, can I? I mean, you know, I thought this, you couldn't do this. And they're like, well, that's Michael. You know, he just writes this stuff. And then they kind of edited it as they went along. But he would, no matter what they told him, he would write, always write beyond. You know, and I guess if you're writing horror as a writer, it's probably good to push the envelope. But he just didn't just push it. He just, you know, he lit it on fire and then burned down the post office. But... Well, he was the guy in the '70s that was writing all those fantastic Spectre he wrote stories Spectre that were in, yes. in adventure comics, and those always had incredibly graphic endings and stuff. And you know, yeah, that's like really the Spectre I think at its at its best when Apero was drawing it and Fleischer was writing those, it. They are great, uh, yes. And Michael Fleischer also wrote the, the Death of Jonah Hex, which. Oh wow! I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely on. one of the greatest comic stories ever written to cap off the life of a comic book character it is probably the definitive one. But you know, only, I, I don't, I, I don't know else who else could have written it. He just had, he just had a very dark, you know, yeah. he could write the dark stuff really well. And well, you know, uh, right now in, in, I'm sorry, go on, and then I'll. Say no, it. no, that's right. The uh, the current DC event convergence. Uh, a lot of it happens in uh, Scartaris, the Warlord's realm, and that was another book that I think post Grell Fleischer took over a lot of the writing for, and I think uh, he was really good in that book as well. And it's um, yeah, I think I think you're right. I, he, I, and I, you know, I remember he had a run-in specifically with Harlan Ellison, where Ellison was trying to pay him a compliment and called him like batshit crazy. Uh, literally, and, yeah, and he and, yes. and he didn't like that and he sued. But he, yeah. you know, that was all that was tied in not just to his comics work but the novel Chasing Harry, which is pretty What's horrific. What's the deal about stuff. that? I, I never I never heard about Chasing Harry. Tell me about I'd that. I'd rather not, but uh, all right. I don't want to. Well, I'm not going to get sued. <laughs> I'm not going to call anybody any names. But I'm sitting across the table from my mom, and I really don't want to talk about the subject matter. But let's just say there were two guys. 
I don't know that they were homeless, but they were just two, you know, kind of Fox. sick goon type oh. guys. Okay. That would find women and then use firecrackers to do terrible things to them. Oh, I think wow. they're dynamite even, uh, whatever. But they would, they would ah. explode them, you know. Use your own imagination for... for uh, Man. Yeah. That's, that's crazy because then on the other side of the spectrum, he wrote the Encyclopedia of Comics editions for Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman when those came out in the 70s. And, you know, those were great. And it really was like the start of what was supposed to be this like long-term project. I imagine sales affected the fact that they stopped doing it. But um, like they had like at least ten volumes or so planned out, and I mean, God, as a little kid, I loved those things. I mean, I, that's where I learned so much about like real like obscure Kryptonian uh, mythology and little facts about Batman. Batman Jones. That's the first time I think I read about Batman Jones and crazy stories like that that weren't being reprinted in those hundred-page spectaculars from the seventies and things like that. Um, you know. I uh, yeah I, I I always liked Fleischer's writing and I guess got to it after it was edited and stuff so yeah it was kind of weird that he made his exit from comics and not knowing more about the story I guess we're gonna all have to look online and uh, see what we can find out about Finding Harry I know some of the Ch- Ellis chasing, chasing Harry chasing chasing Harry thank you well, I never uh, read I, the yeah, novel I, I, everything I know about it was secondhand it sounded it sounded like it was you know a pretty violent kind of you know. Uh, either from the killer's point of view, or at least they were the main characters. I don't know that it was about the detectives chasing these two guys. When you, you know, we we talked about this uh, last year at C2E2. Actually, we were talking about it the other night at dinner, that uh, a fan of yours had found a Charlton comic of The Phantom and had found a fan letter from you in the comic and stuff. And um, I know, you know, obviously you were like, you know, all of us reading, reading this stuff as we were growing up and everything. Did you read any of the... Like uh, a comic buyer's guide or Amazing Heroes and stuff like that. By Amazing Heroes, I think you might have even started to. Well, I was, you know, I mean, I was, was older then. I, I, I'm not a young yeah. man. Uh, well, no, but, but you know, I was well, reading. Uh, I in the 1960s, I really wasn't involved. You know, when I was a kid, kid. Right. I really yeah, wasn't involved yeah. in fandom or anything. Though I did sure. join the Mary Marvel Marching Society. Cool. And I only know that because I didn't. We never. I, I I had read my older siblings' books, and I kind of liked them. I think I maybe had two or three left by the time I got to high school. There were two comics, two or three comics, and they were taped back together because I would cut out ads and send for stuff. And one of the things I did is, you know, became a member of the society, and I found this out because at some point, you know, many many years later, decades later, I was going through a box of some junk probably moving out of my parents' house or whatever, just looking through stuff in the attic. And there was a pad for the Mary Marvel Marching Society. Nice. And I kind of I kind of said, oh, oh, yeah, I joined that. <laughs> you know? That's fantastic. Man, all I had, and God, it's been, I think, 20, 25 at least years since I've seen it, and I don't think I have it anymore. It was my membership card to the Archie fan club. There you go. That I that I joined in the seventies, so I understand. I had no. I, I I mean, I didn't buy this <laughs> stuff. My my older siblings had a few of them. Later, about the time they had the the twenty five cent annuals and giants, you know, uh-huh. that's sure. when I was buying comics on my own, and I'd get a quarter mm-hmm. every week when I like on Sunday we'd be uh, coming home from church or something, and we'd drive by the newsstand, and I'd go in and buy my dad a pack of cigarettes. They never. Asked for ID in those days, right? 
I do the same. And I, I, he'd give me a quarter for me, and I'd I'd look at the, you know, I'm kind of like my time was limited. I mean, he's out in the car, and I'd look, and i go, well, I want this 25-cent thing, and the Jack Kirby covers on the Fantastic Four, and they'll just jump out at me. So I bought, like, a Fantastic. four, and a, you know, a Fantastic Four. I was never a DC guy. I just, I, they were not around when I was a kid, and I didn't That's buy That's interesting. Them, so. Well, my drugstore had uh, DC and Marvel, and it had the Warren, um, you know, uh, Creepy and Eerie, and... Um, and uh, Will Eisner on the peach uh, pulp paper, uh, the uh, the spirit reprints that were prior to uh, when Warren was doing it before uh, Kitchen Sink. Right, sure. I know. I, I have all that shit. stuff. Yeah. Sure, man. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, was, you know, I was like again. I was older than. I mean, I, that, I was no longer in grade school or anything. I was. I was huh? able to buy my own comics. I'm in high school or something. But sure, sure. I, no, I was the guy. In fact, the same newsstand. This is the the Main Street newsstand at Chicago Avenue in Maine and Evanston uh, is still around. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, it's a fancy building now and everything. But this, <laughs> young, this younger guy was managing it at the time, and he, he, was, he took such an interest in his job. He was not a comic book fan, per se. He just loved the business of magazines and, and how the thing worked. And in those days, comics were still returned. You know? I mean, they were still, right. they'd still tear yes. the covers off and return them and everything. Yep, but he, but he. That's where I thought, saw my first fanzine, the the Rocket Splash comic collector, because he. Well, actually, I mean, I, 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 that's probably not true. That's the first time I saw one on sale in the newsstand, maybe. But that's cool. But he, he and I asked him about it. I, I was, I think it was, I, I was actually contributing to Rocket Blast already. I, I found it because I did. Once I got into comics, I found fanzines through comics. I go in there one day, and one of the Rocket Black Blast issues is on sale at my newsstand. And I, whether I was in it or not is immaterial. I had, but I had been in it, and I'm like, "How did this end up here?" You know? And 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 he just said, "Well, I saw an ad in the back of a Marvel comic, and I just thought, oh, I'll I'll I'll, I'll order one for the newsstand and see if anyone buys it." Interesting. And, yeah. You know, and I can't imagine that happening at a newsstand anywhere, but this guy did it. He, he was. Well, I. Honestly, I do think it's interesting that the few magazine specialty stores that survive, that one that you mentioned in Evanston, the one that we both know in Chicago, uh, is it City News yeah. that's by Six Corners, mm -hmm. uh, the northwest side of Chicago? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, that's it, it's there are so few, and I'm always fascinated by what is still being published in magazines, and also. Frankly, the justification sometimes. I mean, there's great content in these magazines, but really, I, uh, you know, just the price of like, you know, when a cover price is twelve bucks, hell, twenty bucks sometimes. There's really interesting. And granted, they're British import magazines, but they're like twenty dollars or something like that. And it's like, well, if you're going to do that, you may as well buy a novel, you know, <laughs> or some some sort of larger like yeah, but volume. Yeah, pictures shit. suck in novels, John. Come on. That, yeah, I understand. Well, you know, that's the thing, man. It's. It's weird, and you know, poor poor Seth Kushner, the the uh, uh, Brooklyn um, photojournalist that did a lot of comic work, uh, just passed away last week. And I was replaying um, a couple of interviews that I had done with him, and we were just talking about how much magazines have changed. And you know it yourself from a, being an illustrator that's been in a lot of magazines. I'm sure that that as a freelancer is a market that isn't as rich as it used to well, be. Well, it's you know, I mean. The, the, you know, it used to be paper costs. Everyone talked about paper costs, right? Comics would go up every year, and you know, from comics going from a dime, which they were for the for what thirty years or something, and then, right. then they went up to twelve cents, and then fifteen, yep. and then all of a sudden it just started speeding up. 
25 cents. There was no more talk of inflation. It was just this crazy spiral where a comic that was once 10 cents has a fifth of the pages or something or, right. or, or, or a quarter of the pages and costs, you know, 10 times as much. It's uh no, not even 10 times. I mean, it's more than that, but they call, they're $5, $3.99 to $5.99, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, there's paper, but you know, then there's advertising, and that's I think what's really been killing magazines and newspapers is all the advertising's gone to the internet. It's all on television and the internet. People are going there for their news, so it's killing that a lot of newspapers. But magazines are getting sucked too. And, yeah, but it is you know, and yet during all of this, it is interesting that uh, comics is finding this middle ground, especially creator-owned comics, where creators are finding an audience that are willing to support them and that they are th- thriving. It's, it's a very, it's a weird time. It's a, it's an interesting time. And again, well, I think the, the makes... word thriving is an interesting word. I mean, yeah, we could, I don't want to get bogged down in this area really. Cause I, I'm, I don't self publish. I don't know what people are. I know it's a tough, tough road. Oh yeah. No, it's no, there's no, yeah. But when you're no. taking the profit in, as opposed to sharing it with a company or them sharing a small piece with you, you're definitely going to be able to survive. If you can get, yeah. you, can, you know, a five a comic that sells five thousand copies, you're going to get nothing from a publisher. But if you publish it yourself, you might just get by. Uh, well, and I'm and I'm just interested in like the people, like Catherine and Stuart Immerman, that you know they even started in that '80s black and white period. Uh, when I talked to Liefeld and stuff, you know, I mean that's another good guy. That is like they've kind of seen both sides of the the amount of product that was coming out in the 80s compared to what's co- going on now and just the differences in publishing and stuff it is it's it's interesting and everybody has their own story and you know again it's it is varying degrees of success but it just seems too that that opportunity is there for the right book and you know it's it, it just seems like you know yeah the the opportunity is there it's still getting the attention for people to come and check out your book and you know a, a whatever profit margin is going to be do make it possible for you to continue to put it out and make it worth your while to do it and everything i don't know that each each creator it's it's their own yeah you know i with, no sure and and without a doubt i mean things are it's a different world i mean everything yeah you know, the 80s is exactly when the black and white boom you know i guess it was called back right. then when the self-publishing or not self but the small publisher started and it was, be- you know, it was because of the growth of the comic book store and the and the direct sales, that, right. you know. And this, you probably talked about all that before. That's really the, you know, the biggest changes in publishing and comics came about because of the business of comics changing. And now you have the whole internet, you know, online comics and people able to promote their work that way. And the world, you know, gets smaller and people can find out. I mean, you get you can get lost on the internet. But you can hear about stuff you never would have heard about unless you lived in a big city and, and you had a comic book show every year. You know, these these people would you know would go to San Diego and promote their comic. They don't necessarily go to every city and town in the United States to promote that little self-published title. You you just came back from uh, the Fort Wayne show, uh, Apple uh, Appleseed. It's called Appleseed. Yes, once Summit City, now Appleseed. And uh, yeah, how's that how's that show been going? Because that's kind of a more Comic Arts Festival versus straight up, you know, it's not a uh, media. It's not a media show. It is a comic right. book show. In some ways, it's an attempt to be a throwback, but I, 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 it's not like it's throwing back from anything. There was no show in in Fort Wayne, 
and this guy uh, Zach Cruz just said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this." You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I love comics, and it's like it's comics art in community. I think is is, is how he describes the theme of, of of his show. He really wants to create this community that celebrates the art of comics, and not just artists, but the making of comics and the people who mm-hmm. make them. And here he is in a you know relatively small market, you know Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's a big city, you know it's a small city or big town by the standards of Indiana, yeah. but you know I think mm-hmm. it may be the second largest after Indianapolis. I'm not sure. Um, so it's a significant town in Indiana. But in any case, it's you know uh, it wasn't really on the roadmap of comic conventions until six years ago. And Zach said, "I'm going to do this," and it's a great show because you go there and. There's a handful of creators, and they're all people making comics, and then there's some vendors selling comics. But you, mm-hmm. you, you don't have the distractions of a huge cosplay event, which is fine, but it, you know it's sort of this other show going on at the show. There is cosplay there now, though. It's going on at every show. But you don't have sure. movie stars or has-been TV actors right. or whatever. You don't have that. You don't have wrestlers or Playboy bunnies. It's all about comics. So anyone who comes there is either curious or knows about comics or wants to find out about them in some way. So it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Were the, Her- were the Hernandez brothers there or one of them? Yeah. This year, well, he, he usually brings in a big guest from somewhere. He's been doing that for a few years. And I can't remember all of them, but last year was Jim Steranko, which yep. was great. And this year it was Jaime Hernandez, and uh, that was just as great. Both in both cases, I guess you know it's this small show in a in a relatively small town. I'm hanging out with those guys and talking comics, and in the case of Stranko, you know movies and, and sure. art in general. Uh, and we're just hanging out and you know having a few drinks, and it's a, it's a, I can't, I don't know that if I you know when I go to say a wizard show in Chicago or San Diego or any kind of big sure. show that I would be hanging out with the guest of honor. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So you got a chance to talk to a uh, shop with Jaime? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about shop, but we did hang out and just, we just talked. I mean, you know, there were a bunch of us sitting around, uh, outside, you know, like the patio cause the weather was nice. And we're sitting out the, out there on the, the first night pre-show party gathering thing. And it was pretty great, you know, sort of That's fans, cool. artists, and, you know, guest of honor all, mixed in together talking uh, and and Jaime's a real down to earth uh kind of regular fella so it, you know there was no pretense or he wasn't on a pedestal by any means that's excellent man how did C2E2 go for you C2E2 was uh, was pretty great it was pretty great yeah it was uh very busy i was sketching i like i have been doing for a few years i do sketches for uh the heroes initiative so you know, people come up and I just go. Sketches are free, but I, I ask you to uh, make a make a donation of your choice. So they 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 put in whatever they think the sketch is worth, and and I and I draw something for them. That's cool. And I also like how um, you you know you do obviously a lot of work uh, for Simpsons comics as well as SpongeBob. And uh, in some ways, it's interesting. You're not allowed to draw Simpsons characters, but you can take. Uh, the person and turn them into a Simpsons character. Is that a fair description? Do it better. Well, yeah. <laughs> Explain it I, better. Mean, I don't even know if I can do that. I mean, every time I talk about it, I go, am I going to get a phone call? But I mean, this, uh, you know, their church simply trying to protect their trademark. Uh, sure. You know, the, the people that publish the Simpsons, you know, it's, 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 it's still trademark is still belongs to 20th century Fox and they have, 
they have more lawyers and money than I'll ever, I'll ever want to see in court against me. But, you know, working for them, they just ask that you do not sell sketches. You do not draw for money for profit. Their characters. They 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 say if someone buys one of our comics, and they want a sketch of the character on the cover, that's great. You know, because that's that's. That's but cool. The further you get away from drawing on their merchandise, the less likely they're going to like it. So, I don't. I can't sit. I can't just draw Bart Simpson for someone. And you know, it gets to be kind of tiresome having to explain it every convention because people expect that since every other company looks the other way in this. And it's been an accepted practice since the beginning of mm-hmm. Comic Cons. But I, I'd say I can't do that. But what I do say, because I've seen other artists do it. I'll say, well, I can Simpsonize you. I can turn you into a character in that style. So I'm sort of walking the line here. But, um, you know, it's something that they, they just sort of accept, I, I imagine. I have never actually asked them about it. So I'll probably get my phone well, call tomorrow. No, I think I think that's cool. And I, and I believe that I, – I, I, I think you're correct. I think other, other artists also do that. And um, I'm surprised that uh, Marvel was able to convince Disney – that that has to continue. Yeah, I, I, they, I don't know what the conversation was there, but I bet it was an interesting one. I bet it as well. Everyone expected yeah. when Marvel was bought by Disney that, that the hammer would come down. And Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, it, it is interesting, and maybe someone was smart enough to just say, you know what, guys? This is part of what comics are, these shows. And yeah. these artists drawing these things, yeah, they're making money off of our trademark. But there, nobody there is... is loosening our trademark. No one's claiming ownership. And we could, sure, we could start clamping down on them, but if you start bringing the stormtroopers into the conventions, you're going to risk, you know, spreading some, you know, bad, you know, some yeah. bad, uh, you know, feeling about something that's making you billions of dollars. Do you really want to yeah, clamp down on this for that? For, for, no, it's what? good. It's goodwill. It's yeah. creating Spider-Man fans for life because yeah. one of the Spider-Man artists managed to draw this kid. I mean, I know that in my own family. One of, one of my nephews, uh, Mike Norton, mm-hmm. was drawing uh, 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 the kid uh, Spider-Man comic, and I had him recreate uh, Doctor Doom with the Cosmic Cube for my one nephew, and he that's like one of his favorite pieces and stuff. He still raves about it. Yeah. And he's like, that was a real Spider-Man artist. I'm like, yes, it was. So you know he was he was very excited about that, and you know he's a fan for life now because of it. So no, you're right. It's it it. I guess they were able to convince them that it's goodwill and a part of the culture. So that's one for our side. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. I, we'll uh, see. I don't. Uh, you know, I'm still waiting for. And look, I don't actually care personally. I don't sit around drawing. You know, Marvel superheroes in particular. I don't. I don't. Uh, you know, I, the sketching is the one thing. People who publish um, their own sketchbooks with trademark characters. You know, it's pretty clearly crossing a line there. You're publishing something, putting a price tag on it. I mean, but, you know, even that is, is pretty common practice. I, I have a feeling at some point, some of those things, someone's going to say, hey, hey, you know. You know, I, I forget, and I don't think we've, we haven't talked about it on the air. Um, you just had a, a DC cover for Convergence. You did a cover of Plastic Man and the Freedom Fighters. I did. A Plastic Man. I think I mentioned Ramona Fraden and Plastic Man earlier. Yes. Uh, he's he's my favorite superhero, and um, well, you had your run with him back in the back in the eighties. Yeah, and I, I drew a a penciled uh, and kind of co-wrote a miniseries with uh, Phil Folio and Doug Rice and John Nyberg, and uh, ended up being the inker. He ended up he was the inker. <clears throat> um, but uh, yeah, no, I love the character. I have an I do I guess I have an association with, but I mean I, 
people identify me with him. Apparently, my my editor Murray Javins uh, said a little birdie said that you might be interested in this or you you, you might be a good choice. I I don't think Marie actually knew who I was or was familiar with my work on Blaster Band, that's for sure. But she was editing the Convergence line and just had this incredible task of of, of doing, you know, being the editor of all these books while while the DC offices were being shipped, you know, or whatever. Right to Burbank from New York, yeah. Across the country, coast to coast. And, you know, so the regular books were on hiatus while this was going on. Anyway, they did this two-issue miniseries. And when I first heard Plastic, she just said, would you like to do a couple, you know, a Plastic Man cover? I said, yeah, I'd love to do a classic Jack Cole-style humor, you know, Plastic Man. <laughs> and she wrote back saying, well, you know, that's not, not really quite. what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my sales just sort of sagged. and But I ended up doing it anyway. And I, in, in the middle of it, I mean, I was first trying to capture the sort of darker and more dramatic tone of the book. I mean, there is Plastic Man action in it, but he's, He's in the regular superhero universe, and he pretty much is, you know, uh, fighting the the Nazis and the neo. Yeah, it's a it's whole, a callback. It's a callback, though. You probably even know what it is. I don't even. I do. You're the DC I guy. Do. Yeah. Well, I well, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I think so. The uh, it was a Len Wein uh, Justice League Justice Society crossover story uh, that involved all the quality heroes and the way that they kind of shoehorned them into. The multiverse was presenting their Earth as what they called Earth X. It was originally Earth Swastika, but I think cooler heads prevailed and said maybe that's not a good idea, even in the seventies, to have that on there. Oh, so they I wish they had, to... had that. Would have been. I would have. Yeah, I would have. I would have. I would have worked down that's Earth badass. Swastika. Yeah, that's badass and everything. But yeah, essentially, it's a it's an Earth where the Nazis win World War Two. And uh, the quality superheroes, and that would be like, you know, Doll Man and the Black Condor and Phantom Lady. And Uncle Sam. And of course, the great Uncle Sam, the human bomb. They were the freedom fighters. And they kind of came up with that name for the purposes of Len's story. And um, yeah, you know, they so the Justice League and society helped them overthrow the Nazis. Then moving forward, there was that 70s freedom fighters book. That, uh, That's where I, I first heard of them, I believe. Yeah, yeah me too, man. And no, I mean, that, and then I, I read a, uh, a, you know, either a reprints or whatever of the the Len Wein story, and they reference obviously Len's story. Uh, but yeah, it was it was cool. Uh, it was very, you know, it was just great that oh, here's an, another bunch of superheroes that I had never heard of, and they were all interesting, kind of colorful heroes. And Phantom Lady wasn't tough to look at, as we learned from decades of Phantom Lady's exploitation over the years. Good cheesecake art. So, uh, right, right. you know, yes, you know, you, I mean, Mr. DC expert. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, Hey man, no, it's, that's well, fine. She's, I, she's famous for, for, yeah, for, for yeah, showing off the, the games and the the cleavage and whatever. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, and, and Hey, great artists like Matt Baker, uh, one of the wonderful forties uh, artists that was forgotten until re being rediscovered in the last few years and stuff did beautiful covers of her for quality back in the forties. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is this, these were neat characters, and again, they came from the Eisner Iger studio. I forget which one specifically, if many, Will Eisner had direct influence of their creation, but they came out of there. I know the I know Ray... he was involved in Uncle Sam. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, he even drew Uncle Sam, I believe. Uh, I think there there, you I go. Think there's some, some, some. Am I wrong? I, well, Lou Fine, and, Lou Fine, obviously, but Lou Fine was in in their studio at the time. And yeah, I was going to say Lou Fine was known for doing the Ray. But he and, also and, drew Uncle Sam. I mean, Reed Crandall, yeah. all those guys. Yeah. Reed Crandall, absolutely, yes, indeed. Well, anyway, 
<laughs> yes, but all I did is the covers on these things. I mean, poor Marie. Did you do, I, you know, did you do the second one? Did you do the second? Co- well, yeah, the two issue series. If that's a series, oh, cool. I don't know if two issues amounts to a series, but there were two issues, yeah. and I mean, because it's two months, two issues. Right. Um, right. And you know, all these characters are in there, and I read the thing, and I'm like, oh boy. And actually, you mentioned Swastika. I don't know if it's an interesting story, but the first issue, I really didn't want to draw these guys in prison, but that's that that does take place. It sort of starts with them in captivity of the Nazis. Right. And right. I so I, I kind of drew that cover with plastic men looking out through the bars and the other heroes in the cell behind them, and they liked that one. They told me, but they really liked this other one better, and that was where plastic man is because it's more of a classic kind of heroic action thing, but symbolic. Yeah, leading, leading the charge. Yeah, but he, yes, he's busting through a Nazi banner, right? And how do better to represent a Nazi banner but a big circle with a swastika in it? And so they're telling me, this is the cover they want to do, but I can't use the swastika. And I'm like, uh, okay, can you make it a, a head of Hitler, you know? And I go, well, okay, there's no other context that this is Nazi Germany or Nazis. It's the face of this guy, Hitler, that we all think we know so well, but once you rip it in half on a batter, banner that's already fluttering and there's heroes busting through it, are you really going to immediately think Hitler? Or are you going to be looking at it going, wait, who's that? Oh, yeah, oh, there's half a mustache, you know. So I, I really didn't want to do that. I mean, I could have ripped his head in half, you know, well, I guess horizontally, and then you would probably would have recognized him pretty quickly, but it just... I didn't. I ended up saying forget it, and I just did a completely different thing, and they loved it. And they're all just flying off the cover from a human bomb explosion in the back. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it felt very Justice Society kind of classic All Star Comics to me in terms of mm-hmm. uh, the positioning of it and everything. Very much so. So, I, so I, I mean, other than not having the logo, which caused some fit problems, and poor Uncle Sam is actually being eaten up by the logo. But I, I put Uncle Sam on the first cover because. Uncle Sam, out of all the characters besides Plastic Man, he's the only one I really have any sort of fondness for. And it's, a lot of it's from the fact that he is Uncle Sam. He's not just a comic book character, but he is this sort of representation of the United States, right? It's embodiment mm-hmm. of American ideals the, and everything. Yeah, the American dream, absolutely. Yeah, no, deceptive, James Montgomery flags poster and everything, you know. And, absolutely. Well, that's And I've always loved that about the comics, that there are times when... Sam just suddenly becomes this amazing super strength kind of symbol in a way that Captain America does, but it's just it's just a less likely hero. Yeah, given but he, that but he, Sam's in the full you know red, white, and blue suit and the hat and everything. I also but love he, that costume. I mean, I know it's a costume. Oh, yeah. You know, it's meant to represent. He's supposed to embody America by wearing the flag, but it was never intended to be a superhero outfit. You know, that's, that's right. not it at all, and. And then when he becomes the character, though, when he becomes a superhero character and they use him, you know, it's it just I just love it. And when you compare it to everybody else, you go, well, at least I understand he's wearing a, a vested jacket and he's yep. wearing a top hat. He's wearing what people actually wore at some time. <laughs> and, and so he's really cool to draw. And so I built the entire second issue around his figure. He's standing in the middle, and it, I really love the drawing. And I, you know, I proudly sent the, or hopefully sent the, you know, the pencils to my editor, going, "Hey, Marie, here you go. Just want your approval before I go to inks." And she's like, "Well, this is great, Hillary. Except, you know, Uncle Sam shouldn't be on the cover to issue two. 
Uh, and she told me why, and I really don't want to, uh, people okay. who haven't read it, right. I don't want to say why. Yeah, yeah. But, yep, yep. but, you know, I'm like, oh, great. So the centerpiece of the cover has to be changed. And so I changed it to the character that I didn't put on there, which is the black condor, who pretty much has one of the gayest costumes ever created. <laughs> and not, not, not terribly memorable in terms of design, et cetera. It just, it shows a lot of flesh and it's, you know, there's some leather, yeah, that's true. some leather and some no, straps. And, and I, I, I think even in the comics, it changed all the time. They just, they couldn't make up their mind. No, this isn't bad enough. Yeah. We've got to make up, we've got to come up with something worse than this. It is weird how they did kind of, yeah, it, it did change over the it years. Wasn't, and yet, it wasn't terribly know. fixed. You know, I don't, well, I don't think he was a huge character. He was, he, you know, he's in, I don't know. Did he have his own book? I think he was more in uh, whatever the team books were. But, yeah, or police comics or some of these right, other. Right, he was in the like, anthologies, rather, yeah, yeah. Right, right. No, I agree, Max yeah. Or that... whatever it was, whichever one. Sure, track, sure. Yeah, whichever one he was in. Any yep. case, yeah, I, yeah. So, so anyway, I had to, re- no, I, I had to redraw him. I had to erase him and redraw him as the Black Condor. And, and in fact, I don't. I wonder if the Ray was even a lead character. I don't think necessarily the re- that the Ray was either. I think it was like Phantom Lady and Plastic Man are really your lead characters of that group, and everybody else was pretty much bad. Maybe Doll Man. Uh, you know, I think all those characters. Oh. Doll Man had his own series, so uh, I don't know that the Ray had his own comic or any of the other ones we've mentioned, except for Phantom Lady had her own comic. Yep. Doll Man had his own comic. Uncle Sam mm-hmm. did, but that was World War II, for crying out loud. So, of course, Uncle right. Sam's right. going to do his own comic. Yeah. And, pl- and Plastic Man. Well, no, no, Plastic Man, or, yes, uh, yes. It's Plastic Man or, and the Lee, and the uh, Freedom Fighters. He's, he's, right. he's definitely the key. He's the biggest sure. character as far as the DCU now, you know, uh, DC Universe goes, yeah. As far as the quality characters, yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. No, I mean, well, he was, you know, I mean, I assume he was the biggest seller of the characters we're talking about also in the 40s. Oh, but well, I just yeah. meant now he's also, I don't think there's a bigger character. I think all those other characters are still secondary to Plastic Man. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. My God, yeah. With all the, you know, the cartoon and everything that came out later and things as the years went on. Yeah. No, it's, it still you know. seems ridiculous that the that Plastic Man isn't a big character. He's never he never really regained the you know the popularity no. stature that he had in the 1940s. And there's some there's something wrong that he in the age of special effects Plastic Man has not become the greatest character superhero ever. I mean because well, you know when I saw the Terminator, you know the second Terminator film and that he was he became sort of metal and and, and morphed and whatever. I'm like, right? This is Plastic Man. <laughs> you know? Totally. No, you're right. And and you know, like Wade in his Justice League run, kind of made Plastic Man very. And Joe Kelly, I think, also. If there were things that they had Plastic Man do, where I it's just like, hate the fact that he's part of much more the regular universe and he's not in a humor book because it's not true to the main. It's not true to the character and what Jack called it. I mean, I understand. Well, would you, you know that even though they have him do funny things or whatever, it's not. It's not the same. It's just not. well, and, but they and they've done that. I mean, you know, God, uh, and now I'm blanking. Oh God, uh, New York creator uh, got so great. Kyle Baker. Kyle Baker's run. No, they, yeah, no, really, I no, they've done. You know, and, your guys, yeah. and your guys' run was your guys' run was honestly. I'm not. I'm not being nice. I remember that and I enjoyed I enjoyed your guys' run. Yeah. Uh, but and Kyle's as well. Um, I always found it interesting. Brian Bendis mm-hmm. and uh, also um, uh, Ethan Van Skyver both expressed interest in doing a straight up crime comic with Plastic Man because even though they were humor strips, 
they were out of police comics. And really, Pat Plastic Man had that Edward G. Robinson brother Orchid sort of, you know. Well, it was, it was, it was in his origin and everything, sure. Yeah, gangster on and, the run and, and, and the stories would get dark. And, and being the 1940s, this was not the politically correct, you know, modern era. And right. people died. People got shot and died. And yeah, I'm right. Absolutely. And the later Plastic Man books started morphing more into a darker kind of horror thing anyway when horror comics became popular. But, but no, and, I, and look, Jeff Cole himself, you know, God, he did crime comics and some brilliant, some sure. very famous crime comics. So he was not, he was not above or, or did not look down on violence and crime. It was part of, you know, the entertainment business. But um, it's just not part of what plastic, the, the core of what Plastic Man was. And I think, I think you could sell that stuff if you did it right. I, you know, there's no question in my mind that it, it, it could work if it was done right. I just sure. don't think anyone's really stuck with it and 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 done it the right way. Um, who knows? Who knows? Maybe yeah. it will happen. Maybe it'll happen. I know that there was a a script out for a Plastic Man movie out there. I've actually read it. <laughs> but uh, oh, really? Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I know they they tried to do Plastic Man a few times. Were you a uh, Were you a Starlog reader back in the 70s? Uh, not not particularly. No, I sure no? I know what Starlog is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Robert Greenberg uh, wrote a lot for Starlog back in the 70s, and he's been on the show. And every now and then when I think of Starlog, I'm like, you know, i got to get Bob back on the show to talk about that magazine in particular. There's the Internet Archive, if you go to archive.org, and there's a lot of old radio shows there, and I'm sure you already know that. But there are also a lot of old pulp magazines in uh, PDF form uh, that not only were pulp magazines, but magazines, too, that went through um, the 80s. And all the old Starlogs are on the Internet Archive, uh, and, and you can get PDFs. And you're and bringing they, it up because... Well, I'm just saying that, like, you mentioned, I mentioned Star, uh, Starlog, and uh, when you mentioned the Plastic Man script, I always think that was... Kind of, going back to when we were talking about fan magazines and stuff, I always thought that was a, an interesting magazine that beyond um, writing stories about the movies, comics, and, and TV of its day, which is interesting enough, there were always conceptual art and rumors of scripts oh, and little articles and stuff of, oh, there's a Green Lantern movie in development, you know, and it's like 1978. Gotcha, right. No, and I understand. Gil, and, and, you know, there's Gil, Gil Kane, uh you know, uh, art that's like circulating that's for this movie or whatever, you know, just well, whether it was true or not, the, you know, the, the plastic man script that I read was either by the Wachowski brothers or written for them, uh, or, or, or with someone. I, I can't, I can't recall now whose name was actually on there. I think it was their name. Oh, wow. They, did it, they, did it was it, something they were trying to get produced for a while. Yeah. Did it play up the criminal element? Uh, and, because I could, you could see a Donnie Brasco uh, like kind of situation for Pratt Plastic yeah, Man. Yeah, I don't really remember. The, you know, I'd have to. You know, it's been a number of years now, but it was. It, I do believe it, there was an origin uh, aspect to it and all of that. Uh, I don't remember that. I think they kind of discarded that. But you know what? Don't quote me. Let me let me reread it. We'll talk about it on a future <laughs> podcast. I understand. Let's get back to your Mars attacks. Well, uh, story. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, this is the biggest digression of all. Um, no, no, this is all good. But it all ties into Wally Wood because both the SpongeBob annual, which was a science fiction themed uh, annual, and Mars attacks is their science fiction issue. And when when I was asked about doing a story for that, I'd, I'd, drawn, an, I'd drawn a story for their superhero issue, um, the Puketacular, I believe they called it. 
um, that Bill Ray had written. And I, you know, I, I, when 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 my editor on that book said, "Hey, would you like to do another story?" I said, "Yeah, but I'd like to write one." And and so I ended up. He said, "Well, we have the this available, this theme, and this theme, and the theme I picked was science fiction." And he said, "Well, what would you like to do?" I said, "Well, how about a, a sort of parody of the of the Mars Attacks guys versus uh, the garbage buckets?" And he's like, "Oh, that's great." And then later he said, "Well, make them the real Mars Attacks." <laughs> I said, "What do you really? What do you mean?" He goes, "Because he had kind of steered me away from that at first, but." When Tops heard about it, Tops is the, the, the you know they own the license to both. Right. Mar- you know, these were both card sets. You know, Mars Attacks and Garbage Buckets were originally card sets by Tops, and mm-hmm. IDW, the publisher of the comics now, has the license to both Mars Attacks and Garbage Buckets. So he said, "Yeah, and I'll just make him the actual Mars Attacks uh, <sighs> character." So I didn't have to sort of draw them. I sort of, I sort of have it both ways. It ends up being a, I mean, that's part of the story, and I don't want to give it away, but they do end up being kind of like garbage bell kids. But um, it, it was, it was great. Now, and then, and the connection also is the Wally Wood connection is because Mars Attacks was at least visually created uh, in part by Wally Wood, who did the pencil drawings and design work. So you know, the aliens really are inspired, you know, by Wally Wood aliens, and he's. He's drawn the Martians and all this stuff, that, and then Norm Saunders painted them. I think actually Bob Powell is credited for being another artist who either I've heard that. yeah refined wood stuff, and he's another guy who came out of the 1940s. And uh, oh yeah, you know. God, think of those three names seriously: Wally Wood, Norm Saunders, and Bob Powell. Just amazing artists. Yeah, and you have a link Absolutely. from the pulps through the the, the golden Absolutely. age of comics into the Silver Age, right there. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Holy shit, yeah. No, you're right. Okay. That's that's very And cool. then a Tim Burton movie and then then new card sets and 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 now and now comic books again. And uh I yeah, so anyway, I you know, I I, I co-wrote the story with Doug Rice who a guy Doug and I worked on Plasterman. I think I may have mentioned him before. I don't think there's anyone I've worked with more often and on on a stranger variety uh, more varied anyway uh, uh, a bunch of, of comics and characters and he's worked on stuff that you know we thought was the greatest some of the greatest comics ever ever written and drawn you know jack cole's plastic man we've, we've, we've worked on that character and and then most recently we've worked on on the garbage bell kids which doug holds in slightly slightly less esteem i must admit Doug's like we've sunk this low. We're working, but I mean, what, what they are—I mean, what the garbage pails kids are—and I have a connection. I tried to explain this to Doug. You know, I don't look down on them the same way he does. They're gross-out humor, but there's a connection to the stuff that we love because it really—it's—it's it's sort of that gross-out side of mad and and what what what, sure. what, what you know that's Kurtzman and Wood and everybody. But there was that aspect to mad, and certainly later on, but. Um, you know, in the magazine, they did a lot of gross-out stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, but in the, you know, but it's there. That that connection is there, and it's it's you know, like to me, wacky packages, which were an earlier uh, card set uh, than than the garbage Bell kids. Absolutely. They, they were really connected to Mad. They were like the parodies of uh, that Mad did so well. Right, the commercial ads, yeah. the magazine ads, and, stuff that they would yeah, do. Yeah, the absolutely. Garbage Bell kids are a lower form of satire. They're, they're, they were sort of in general making fun. Specifically, they were making fun of 
the, the Cabbage Patch dolls, which were this mm-hmm. huge fad, popular dolls that people would buy. And, oh God, yeah. Uh, and and you know it was you know and, and it was it was just right for 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 parody. And it, it's you know it's not the subtlest form of parody. It's pretty savage, but. Um, you know the garbage pail kids. The way I look at them, they're essentially you know they're, they're a bunch of masochists. I mean, there's more body mutilation and torture and horrible things happening to these characters. They're sort of defined by their 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 horrible fates. You know. <laughs> sure. And but I would imagine. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, and then then you know when when it's Mars attacks garbage pail kids, it's sort of like you know sadism meets masochism. So you know it's pretty well, easy to see who wins there. They all win. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, and I would imagine for you it's the best of both worlds because you love doing crazy alien monsters, and you know this does kind of feed both sides of the sci-fi side and also the extreme humor that the gross-out opportunities have with the garbage pail kids. So they do kind of it totally fits, and I would think that that's that's a great opportunity for you and Doug to really do fun stuff. Well, it, it, it was. I mean, I you know. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's interesting how this stuff ends up pushing you because I don't think I'm naturally a gross art artist, but I, I, well, I know Doug, that's not what Doug does. And I had to kind of push him, but I was pushed in the first story by Bill Ray. I'd never done a, mm-hmm. an the entire story about poop before. So there you go. <laughs> I, I, think there's, I do think there's more poop in that story than in any story. And maybe Robert Crumb did that one. I'm trying to remember. I don't want to think about it actually. Do you have uh, any Bago work, uh, any Simpsons Bago work coming up that you can tease, or uh, is it too early to talk about? Well, I mean, actually, the thing that I have on the drawing board now is the next Simpsons story, but I don't even—it's not even on the schedule, I believe. It's a, it's a okay. Grandpa Simpson story, and it's um, it's it's uh, I guess I could probably say it's it's sort of a well, uh, you can tell me what these things are called, but it's the it's where you you can choose. At different points in the story, you can turn to a different page if you want to yeah, end just, that way, or if you want the story to take this twist instead of that twist. Sure. What were those choose your called? own adventure. Choose your own choose adventure. Choose your own adventure. So it's sort of like that with with Grandpa Simpson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's fun. But of course, it's Grandpa we, Simpson, so everything in it is completely absurd, and you know. Did Did Chuck write it, or did Gail write it, or anybody it, like that? It, Chuck Dixon like or Gail? Derek Dryman, who uh, does a lot of okay. work there at the Simpsons, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, that's yeah. hey man, I gotta tell you, Bongo always those are quality comics, man, and not just because they employ you and Andrew and Peepoy and guys like that, but for real, I I think that um, the writers really have the voice of the show, and I'm not a SpongeBob person. I will trust my friends who do read it that say that it, uh, the same can be said for all the SpongeBob stuff. But that I think is the hallmark of Bongo is that. You know, in the 70s, we really got screwed, and unfortunately, one of the things that Charlton did, I think, was dumb down a lot of the Hanna-Barbera licenses and some of the things that they got an opportunity to do comics with, and we just, I mean, you were, I think, a teenager by that point, but I know as a little kid, I mean, Flintstone comics and Scooby-Doo comics were not good, and luckily, I think a lot of the licensors have, like, made an extra effort to really get creators well, here, you that know, this un- is, this understand is, the properties better. I, look at, I mean, I, I think, I think it's, it's kind of simple to me how this works. Most of licensing is, is done out of money and fear. Those are the two factors, right? <laughs> Everyone's trying to make money, right? The comic company's trying to make money. Right. That's why they're licensing. They're, they're doing the license. But then they're afraid to offend the licensure, you know, the licensee, I guess. Right, right. And, 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 and 
and they go, oh, no, we want we want to capitalize on this thing, so we have to make it exactly, we have, you know, whatever. They have, they're trying to mimic something, but certainly the person who's licensing their character, they're, they're terrified that they're going to change it and turn it into the crap you're talking about, uh, or just the unpopular whatever it is that you're talking about. And there's this whole game that is played, and it's a losing game, because they end up turning out lousy comics, and they don't really turn people onto the characters. They, people who right. are disappointed to come from television to find the characters. I mean, when they're done poorly. There have been good licensed comics. I mean, oh, absolutely. You know, IDW is doing a lot of them right now, frankly. Hmm? I mean, that, IDW, who's well, doing right. your... And no, I mean, there have been and there are. I mean, and some of the greatest comics ever done were done with characters that came out of another medium. I mean, you look at Carl Bark's Donald Duck comics. There's almost absolutely. no connection at all between Donald Duck, the quacking, unintelligible duck of animation, and the character that Carl Barks really created as a character in that universe, that world of Duckburg. It's just, you know, it's night and day. If someone had said, oh, you're not drawing it exactly the way, you know, they did in the, car- in the cartoons, Mr. Barks, you're going to have to look at these model sheets, you're going to have to do this, you're going to have to do that. They let him, they, they gave him his head. They, Disney today would not do that. There are too many people... Right that sit around in offices and their job is to tell artists what to do. They themselves are not artists. They have sheets of paper in front of them with faces on them that some animator has traced off of a copy sure. of a, of a mimeograph of a, you know, of a, of a sketch. And they just, you know, it's just really a bad way to run a business, but it's all done out of this fear of not, not protecting the trademark not or not offending the, you know, the persons you're licensing this from. And Bongo has always been, and when it started, even though you know, Matt Groening's at the helm of it, that without a doubt, the writing is the strength of that show, not the animation. Yeah. Well, writing was yep. also the strength of the comic book. And it's taken literally a few decades for it to loosen up a little bit and become more and more like a comic book where the artists have their own voice and there's a little more visual, you know, st- uh, you know there's the difference between one artist. You can tell who's drawing them uh, a little more, I think, than you could at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Everyone was trying to do the animated line at the beginning of that comic. But they're great people working out. Without a doubt, there's some funny stories. I mean, I've gotten scripts there that are hilarious, and they really are like scripts that could have been on the show. You know, and Absolutely. I mean, if that's your standard, I'm just, you know. Um, well, and I mean, just in terms of that, that's like the best, like the most amazing thing about The Simpsons is it's, you know, over 25 years, and it's still like an amazingly well-written show and very funny. And that's the thing that they allow, like you said, the writers are really getting to write good stuff. And you're right, on the art side, there is a, 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 a more appreciation for what the artists can bring. But ultimately, it's, it's and that, it just and represents... And guys the, like Andrew Peepoy who come straight out of comics and, and he's, he's inked, you know, more, more Simpsons comics than anyone at this point, I'm sure. But certainly he's one of the, the biggest inkers now. But Andrew, you know, just pushed the ink line. He pushed the brush line, and the entire line of Bongo stuff used to be a rapidograph line, probably, but it was a it was a dead weight pen line. Uh, but SpongeBob differs because from the very beginning, Steve Hilgenberg, the creator of SpongeBob, you know, here's a one man operation. This guy who created this character and is still is controlling its destiny, and Steve hired Chris Duffy. And Chris Duffy came out of Nickelodeon, and Nickelodeon Magazine in particular. He worked at DC, too, but he, he, mm-hmm. he, he was one of the editors 
over at um, you know, one of the creative forces behind Nickelodeon magazine, which was a great, great magazine for kids and a great opportunity for a wide range of alternative comics people um, who didn't draw those characters and those, you know, those animated characters in this case, exactly like they were on the show, but really made them work as comics. And Chris has taken the SpongeBob comic as an opportunity to produce this really fun comic book. And I liken it back to something like Pee Wee's Playhouse, where they would just, just anything goes in a way. And, you know, they they all have a lead story that looks a lot like the animated show. But as you get into the comic book, things start to get, you know, a little more quirky. And there are people, you know, back there, who draw SpongeBob in a radically different way, you know, and write their own kind of wacky stories. And it really works. I mean, James Kachalka wrote the the first maybe yeah. three stories I drew, and he also draws his own. And he is not exactly, you know, your your, your mainstream comic book writer. You know, he's not <laughs> your slick Hollywood guy that you would go to. Chris Definitely not. Loves loves comics, and he really understands how this can work. It's the opposite of the cookie cutter approach where everyone, they're trying to fit all the round pegs of artists into the square holes, or is it the other way around? I always forget. In any case, I like we it. destroy the, or the pegs destroy the holes here is what I'm trying to say. I like it. No, absolutely, man. Yeah. Very cool. Well, two, two good examples coming in June in, uh, in the, uh, Mars attacks uh, book from IDW and the SpongeBob annual from Bongo. Yeah. I got to tell you the name of the Mars attacks book, please. Uh, cause I mean, it's actually a garbage bell kids comic. My story ah. is Mars attacks garbage bell kids, but the name of the comic book proper, the science fiction issue. Let me see if I get this right. It's garbage pale kids. Uh, I don't know if it says garbage, it's garbage bell kids comic, but it's gross encounters of the turd kind. <laughs> turd kind. Yes, I said turd. Yeah, yeah, We're back you. to the poop thank again. You. All right, there we mm-hmm. go. Well, it's Garbage Pail Kids, so we expect it. All right, very cool. Yeah. So Garbage Pail Kids, Close Encounters of the Turd Yeah, kind. and I, I thought, originally I thought that was coming out on the 10th. I know that the the, the Lunchbox book's coming out on the 17th. The 17th just happens to be my birthday party, so I called up uh, Patrick Brower over at Challengers here in Chicago, right? The Challengers comic yep. book store, and I was like, hey, would you want to do a little signing thing? It's on my birthday. Maybe we could do this. And he's like, oh, that sounds great. And then he looked it up and said, you know, I think that uh, that that uh, coverage spell book, that's not coming out until the 24th. you want to push it till then? And I'm like, oh. So I don't think it's good. I don't think we're going to have our event on my birthday, but maybe we'll have it at the end of the month or something. Okay. Well, that's cool. But maybe I'll Excellent. see you there, at, you know, in, in the real world. On a Wednesday, absolutely. In the non-pod world of comics. That's, that's, that's true. Excellent. But, uh, no, I, I look forward to that, and I, uh, I appreciate the time tonight and uh, getting uh, to peek inside uh, what's going on in, in the Barter world. So uh, we did a little... household. Indeed. Well, that's all right. And, uh, no, you can edit out all the screaming and, you know, the throwing at plates <laughs> and things. Yeah, don't worry, baby Jane. It's all covered. Okay. Everything's fine. Right. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, no, everything's going good, and, I, and I'm glad to hear that you got new product coming along, and uh, we look forward to it. What is your next con? The next con is probably never. I mean, it may be next year. I, I've kind of been turning okay. down stuff. Well, I'm taking care of my mom now. Uh, that's that's why it's often chaotic in the house. Uh, I, I, well, not chaotic, but it's, it's not just me here answering the phone. Sure. Other things. Well, she's, 
Yeah, I have other duties now, and, and, and so it's harder yeah. for me to leave. I have to involve the family and stuff because my mom is elderly. But um, we'll pro- you know, I'll probably go to something later in the year. I don't know what, but I, I you know, I okay. definitely will be back at C2E2 and the usual things next year. But I may not do any summer shows. I, I, I okay. kind of done. I think I've done enough this year already. Anyway, for my own, I'd love to go back to to CincyCon. Uh, that uh, you know. Uh, Kara and uh, Tony Moore, Tony yeah. Wilson, but I, I, I don't know if I can make that one either. But that, that's great. That's okay, a great man. show. Plug for I love that plug show. Kara and Tony. Absolutely, man. Now they'll uh, they they the uh, panels from CincyCon, much like last year, will come back up. I'll be I'll be there again this year. Oh, great. So you're, uh, you're going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, man. No, it's a good opportunity for me to talk to uh, creators, as we did last year. And uh, no, I'm glad I'm glad to have you on this time. What's your and, next uh, time, John? I think San Diego. Okay, most likely San Diego. Yeah. So yeah, I haven't been there uh, in a while. I don't know when I'll ever make it back to San Diego, but I understand. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a great, amazing, crazy time. It that you just took the words out of my mouth, sir, and I'm looking forward to it. But it is amazing and crazy at the same time. Yeah, hey, way so. too many, way too many moments for me spent with you know like celebrities I don't care about looking at me like. Why are you looking at me? I'm like, I'm looking at you because you're on the elevator with me. I don't care about you. Leave me alone. But every, but every now and then you get like a Ray Wise, you know, from Twin Peaks and RoboCop. And oh. Of course, for me, for me, and I told him this, uh, he played Don Hollenbeck in the uh, George Clooney, Edward R. Murrow movie, Good Night and Good Luck. And he, big smile broke out on his face. He's like, oh, thank you. He goes, I don't hear that much at Comic-Cons. And I'm like, no, man, you're a great character actor. And that's, for, you know, Bruce Greenwood, I got to run into him. He played Kennedy in that Kevin Costner, uh, 13 Days, and did a great sci-fi show in the 90s called Nowhere Man. Mm-hmm. Of course, was Captain Pike in the more recent Star Trek movies, the last two Star Trek movies. So it's those kinds of uh, encounters at Comic-Con for me that are still fun and just random because they are still like they're in they're an artist or they're in the autograph section, but they're small enough that they you know don't have to put on a disguise to like mingle through the crowd the way Brian Cranston had to, for instance, last year for well, Breaking I, I mean, I'm sitting in Artist Alley last time I was there. I think uh, you know Leslie Snipes is walking through Artist Alley with with sure. with, a, with a guy, you know, with a guy. <laughs> sure, but sure, just... but that's. But that's what's too bad. No, it's that those days are over because I even remember one of my first ones, Samuel L. And it was around the time of uh, Snakes on a Plane. And Samuel L. Jackson just by himself was walking through Comic-Con and not getting hassled. And it was it was cool seeing that he was able to kind of walk the walk the aisles and stuff and enjoy himself. But no, it is. Yeah, it's a lot tougher now for for a lot of the big stars and stuff. So that's why it's kind of fun when, you know, not only do you get to see like or Richard Anderson. Oscar Goldman and of course a million uh, character actor roles in TV and, and movies for Universal for you know fifty plus years. Oh, it oh could, my God. could not have been everything. Nicer. I mean, yes. Before we were, from Britain Planet. No, before we launched this, we we're talking about the Fugitive. He's on several episodes of that. I, That's right. Know, he's he's, uh, he's Kimball's uh, brother-in-law. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. <laughs> you do know your stuff. Oh man, there's a great clip of we mentioned the fugitive. There's a great clip of David Jensen, the star of the fugitive, on a Carson show with Don Rickles, and Rickles has just finished his bit and he's still sitting on the panel. And David Jensen comes out and he is like bombed out of his mind. And I think because he had just come back from like a Tokyo flight and and like landed in L.A. Also and literally was just. I mean, he, so I mean, 
I mean, he was an actor. I mean, you know, he probably was, you know, he probably, this was also, you know, this is the years of the Mad Men, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. It was the cocktail generation. So, yeah, it was perfectly okay for him to, you know, relax and, and you know, have a have a pop or two before coming on Carson. But, yeah, he was very relaxed. Did Rickles very- go after him for that? I mean... Well, they both they both knew that he was drunk, but by the same token, were teasing him a little bit, but also, you know, kind of helping him out as much as they could. But he was tripping over his own words, and it is fun just seeing, like, it was when he was doing Harry O, the oh, yeah, uh, 70s, sure. after, after the future. I'm curious to see like, that show again. That's one, you know, I see, I see the Fugitive all the time. I have <laughs> never seen, I know it's available, uh, I just have not seen the show. You know? Harry O? Yeah, yeah I, I haven't I, seen it since I, it came I, out originally, well, well, since it was on TV. Well, we were mentioning off the air before we started recording, uh, there's a new digital channel, and I know that it's uh, from CBS, and it's called Decades. Yes. And it's like Me TV, it's like Antenna TV, Cozy is uh, Universal and, and NBC's version of rerun television. And uh, yeah, Decades has been showing, uh, you told me you were, you were watching The Fugitive, they were showing The Twilight Zone, Dark Shadows no, was I, on there. Yeah, I know, and I hadn't, I mean, honestly, even though I almost did, I was, well, I was that close to doing a, a sort of a, a one-shot little parody of Dark Shadows, the movie, uh, it never happened, but, uh, I, you know, I, I saw that, I used to be one of those kids who would see, watch that on, after school. Oh, yeah. And I when I saw the black and white episodes, it was just like, really? This is what I was watching? It was so weird. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was watching shows like The Millionaire, which I'd never really seen. And what's yes. the, Oh, God. What's the show? What's the, the one about the Khan family? Um, what the heck is that called? Oh, the uh, yeah. The, it's um, – oh, God. It's uh, – God, it was one season, and it's all these wonderful British uh, and American actors and um, – it's uh, what's his face? Who's the big drunk from They Shoot Horses? Don't they? Um, wasn't he in that show? The 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 big who for the, that movie? Well, anyway, remember it's not, they, it's not well, David Niven, but who's the British actor who's the lead? It was Charles Boyer because right, I thought Charles Boyer's on it, which is crazy. He's, he's like a TV show. Um, but Richard Long meant, might yeah. be on it. Um, you know, Richard Long, the TV actor. Yeah, I thought Gig Young was Gig on Young, the show Gig too. Young. Yeah, maybe there isn't a British actor. Oh, or, or it's not the, the handsome leading man British actor, I was thinking. It was an hour-long show. Aaron Spelling produced it. Right. And it was only one season. And it's still not as terrible and, as you'd think, because Aaron Spelling really made a lot of crap. But Terry Thomas, Craig Stevens, were they on that show yeah, too? Yeah, uh, Terry Thomas was... Uh, is it Terry Thomas, really? I thought it was... Maybe, maybe it was, but I don't remember... Craig Stevens, did you say? Really? I thought so, but I couldn't. I don't be think wrong, they were the right? regulars. No, they maybe, maybe uh, they appeared on episodes. Yeah. All right, that's the Rogues is the name of that show. The, the Rogues. Rogues. That's it. There you go. And I'm about to look up the uh, the group, but yeah, it was in 1964, the year I was. Well, anyway, we, before we got bogged down, it I'm just shows like that are on there, and then of course, like you say, it's one series or one year. Yeah, and it was, and it was. So it came uh, and it went was pretty the, quickly on my TV set because these shows are run in sequence. They just run them. I don't know if they're running them 24 hours a day or what. Sure, they were. Well, they were on that uh, decade. Yeah, they, like, they were basically doing. Yeah, but I mean, I'm watching. I'm watching Route 66, and it, you know, it goes on for a while. The oh, Fugitive yeah. goes on for a while because there are years of those shows, and they had and Naked City they making, and other shows like that. And back when they were making like 36 to 39 episodes a year, but when and I stuff, first, too. like early on, after well, like after I watched, uh, or they did the. I think they've already done Route 66 twice on this series, where they've done every episode, you know, two, two times a night. Sure. But somewhere after the first time, 
I, I tuned it in one day, and they're showing something horrific like Love American Style. But they, oh, that. they also did celebrity bowling for crying out loud. I mean, oh, I didn't do celebrity, celebrity bowling. bowling. I watched like I'm watching stupefied like 15 minutes of an episode, and I tuned in and watched another 15 minutes. It, it's just the smart. I mean, there's they have, you know, there's a mixture of. I mean, one I was watching Cornell Wilds on it, some other somebody from TV, and then some you know celebrity of that era, female who I had no idea who she was. She was obviously there. She was famous for. Someone thought she was attractive once, though I had absolutely no inkling of that on this show. And the guys are in the background making little smarmy comments while she's pulling. <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it's real 70s, man. It's really like, what well, like, the hell? Well, <sighs> even, even Love American Style, and don't get me wrong, it's an insipid show, but it's fun to watch because... It's a time cap. Like, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the the uh, Rogues uh, cast members were Robert Coote, Charles Boyer. See, Robert Coote is the, the British guy. He's the British one. He's yep. the British sort of David comedian, Ni- second, second-tier comedian actor. Type. Yes, David Niven was on the show as and well. He was, and it was David Niven. See, just, and, I just and, can't believe David Niven young. sunk from, say, Stairway to Heaven, yeah. which I was just watching on TV the other day, to a show like The Rogue. But I guess it's no, a paycheck, right, that, you know. I mean, well, yeah. but that's the thing. They they kind of all. I think a lot of and it and it even happens now, and you see it happening. Just watch primetime television. A lot of major stars, after their film career kind of cools off and they reach their their middle age, they they kind of go to television. And I think Niven was one of those guys because he was also doing with Boyer that four star playhouse. Mm. That that uh, I want to say Alan Ladd was uh, the producer of, or either Al, or Dick Powell. It was Dick, Dick Powell. Powell. Well, the four that, star yeah. the four star people were were Dick Powell and Ida Lupino and her and her husband uh, and producer Howard guy. Duff. Yeah. But I think Howard, Howard Duff, Duff and then there's a there's an Aaron actual Spelling? producer guy mixed in who I think she might have been married to. Anyway, I thought it was Aaron. Uh, yeah, I was going to say too. I thought Aaron Spelling was part of that whole four star. Well, maybe so. Group, but I'm not sure. But yeah, it's no. They, these are neat shows, and they pop up on these channels like Cozy and MeTV, and now Decades. And yeah, Decades is getting its full fledged debut as we're recording this on Memorial Day. Uh, so it'll be interesting moving forward to see what shows they show. And I'm all for celebrity bowling. I love stuff like that. That's it's, fantastic. It, well, fantastic might be a word. There may be some other words you could use, but it is. <laughs> It is a diverting for a short, a short moment to actually yeah. see, like people watch this because you know we have reality TV today, and some of them are pretty exotic. People travel around the world dating, sure. you know, beautiful women, I suppose, or whatever. They're, but there's some money spent on the shows. This is a bunch of like has-beens in a bowling alley. <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah. we're supposed to think that's entertaining. But I guess hey, celebrities man. just going to the bathroom would be a show if they could do it. I mean, I think back then that, that was the case. Yeah, actually, that would be a big hit. What am I saying? Or all the ga- but all the game shows, including celebrity bowling, that like Jan Murray and all these like nightclub comics, that was the way to promote their road entertainment was to do those shows. And I think it was like they were happy that those shows existed because. You know, they were getting scale. They were only getting like a hundred bucks or whatever, or two hundred bucks to do the show. But it also was like a nice advertisement of, oh, by the way, if you're going to Atlantic City, come see my show. You know, Buddy Hackett, you know, Marty Allen, all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But anyway, look, no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> I got a bit. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I actually, while you were talking, I <clears throat> believe it or not, I actually opened the computer and, and looked up four star. And here you go. Uh, 
founded by Dick Powell, David Niven, Joel McRae, and, and Charles Poirier. Wow, Joel McRae was one as well. Interesting. Yeah, and what I'm confused this with was, was uh, you know, because Ida Lupino formed a production company with, I mm-hmm. believe, her husband at the time. I think, and I know she was married to Howard Duff, but I, thought, I think it was another guy who she was married to. And if it wasn't her husband, it was somebody else. So I could look up Ida Lupino, and I'm not going to do it now. But, but, yeah, she had her own production company. Um, it wasn't four star. I, I kind of lumped her in there for some reason. I don't know. I'm, and the, you know what? Senior moment number five thousand three hundred twenty. Well, that's the, no, no, that's all right. I think I told you. I don't know. Mentioned it. I didn't mention it on the air. But Turner Classic Movies a month or so ago had run um, that John Drew Barrymore movie where he is the psycho killer running loose in the city, and it's um, Dana Andrews is the lead, it's, and he yeah, plays like an Edward R. Murrow character. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. It's, it's the first, what was the name of that movie? It's the first film, and it's uh, yes, it's uh, City Night, not Night in the City, which is a different. While the city, while the, while city, the city sleeps. sleeps. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, and it's one of the last RKO movies, but Thomas Mitchell. It's neat because it's like mid to like it's fifty six or fifty seven as far as when it was released. Mm-hmm. So it really was like one of the last years that RKO was releasing new movies. This, this has the classic "Stop Me Before I Kill Again," you know, written in a lipstick yes. on on the mirror thing in the bathroom. It's, yeah, and and Dana Andrews as this Edward R. Murrow kind of television newscaster is doing a profile of the killer, and it's Drew Barrymore's father, I believe, right? John Drew was was that Drew's father or or grandfather? I thought it was her father. No, that would probably be her father. He probably yeah, and and like part of the thing that this guy was such a psycho was he reads comic books, and a comic book from the fifties. Well, sure, yeah. And there's an EC comic book in his hands. It's fantastic. So it really was kind of perfect, you know, like, oh, God, <laughs> this is really playing to that, that stereotype of juvenile uh, delinquents and, and comic books and deviant behavior in comic books. So pretty funny stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, Hill. Well, good job. And, uh, and uh, look forward to the, uh, the new books coming out in, uh, in June and, uh, and beyond. And uh, whatever's on the drawing board for The Simpsons, that's, that's good news as well. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing you, hopefully, at uh, your signing at Challengers uh, near the end of uh, June to uh, honor some of these uh, books coming out. Why, thank you, Chuck. Okay, time to wrap things up, and uh, happy to uh, welcome back Brian Chrisman, Pants, from the Comic Geek Speak podcast. Uh, Ten years uh, for Comic Geek Speak, ten years for Word Balloon. Uh, We're in a rare club of uh, podcasts that started in 2005 and are still going on. Uh, and uh, very happy to welcome uh, one of my favorite members of Comic Geek Speak, and that's Pants. So uh, it's uh, good to have him on to talk about David Letterman and more, and I hope you enjoy this as we wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. You know, I tried to record a C2E2 podcaster roundtable, and um, I lost my uh, uh, my uh, recorder. Uh-oh. But regardless, I ran into uh, Pants from Comic Geek Speak there, and um, I think I didn't know until because uh, we did it on Friday, and I, we didn't see each other till Saturday or Sunday. Right, right. So, my man, good to talk to you. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me, John. Always a pleasure talking to you, whether in person or via the interweb. It's all true, man. It's all true. <laughs> and then, uh, man, um, you know, so we see each other at C two E two, and then I, uh, I, you know, I, I know your love of David Letterman. And was so happy for you that you were able to go to the final Letterman performance. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. That is something I just can't believe I actually pulled off. Um, when I heard about his retirement uh, upcoming, I guess it was last April, he announced it. Uh-huh. I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go to that last show? You know, I've, I, I was at his 10th anniversary taping. 
wow. his 20th anniversary taping, his 30th anniversary taping, and now I actually made it to the final. That just – I don't think anybody besides Dave, the band, and some staff actually can say that. <laughs> Hey, so how many all to- – have you counted all together how many you've seen? Well, I certainly have my database right in front of me, sir. Uh, no, I want to know. Uh, I saw two shows at NBC and a total of 37 at CBS for 39 total. Damn. Jesus. You know, are you aware uh, – because like older uh, talk show nerds know – about Mrs. Miller. Do you know about Mrs. Miller? Mrs. Miller. I'm not sure. Tell me about Mrs. Okay. Miller. Well, well, Mrs. Miller um, started with like Steve Allen and watching his show. And she lived in New York and would come to Steve Allen. I don't know if it was specifically his Tonight Show. I think it was, but definitely one of his daily talk shows. Mm-hmm. And then, and then as uh, she uh, went to Merv Griffin, okay, and and she would. And she would uh, and she would come and be just a regular audience member. And much like you, she would come from Philadelphia and take the train to New York and and do that to, to make sure she could see the show. And seriously, she just kind of became this very uh, like famous audience attendee that every now and then, oh, look, Mrs. Miller's here. <laughs> oh, good to see you. I'll be right back. You know, my, that's, my, that's my best Merv. That's, that's it. Exactly. Yeah, you know your SCTV. Exactly. <laughs> that's and right. Fact, I I think they even make reference to a Mrs. Miller in one of the uh, Rick Moranis, Smurf Griffin takeoffs and stuff. But um, for real, man, no, she she was just like this like devoted um, audience member to the point where she even made novelty records and like they'd let her sing. And she, <laughs> and she had this crazy voice, kind of like the lady that played uh, Anne Harriet on uh, on Batman, like <laughs> like this, you know. But like she, I remember hearing she did the Petula Clark song "Downtown" when you're alone, and life is getting you lonely, you know. And she did "When You're Alone" and life is getting you lonely. <laughs> swear to God, man, I, I, I'm here. I, I swear to God, Pat's the only reason why I bring it up. So you are kind of like Mrs. Miller in the best possible way. Wow, yeah. Because when I got to be old enough to actually go to the tapings, um. And be able to go there on my own. I went to as many as I could. And I got so fortunate with tickets for myself, friends giving me tickets. Going, I'd go up there in the last like 10 years on a whim in the, in the winter and get in literally every time I went up there. It was just without a ticket. It was just amazing. That's fantastic, man. No, that's great. Um, I got to see Johnny Carson in 1982. Oh, that's one guy I never got to see in person. And a clip of it is on YouTube when he's uh, – it's a Charles Grodin clip, and um, it absolutely is from the show. And I know it's the only um, network talk show that I got to. I've, I've been to a few local shows uh, here in Chicago, but that's the one big network one that I got to see. And it was Charles Grodin, Victoria Principal, and a young Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, I'm, and I, I'm deeply jealous. And I didn't <laughs> I didn't, well, I didn't remember that Jerry Seinfeld performed on the show. Um, like he made no impression on me, and that's the God's honest truth. <laughs> I, 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 he really didn't. It was just like, okay, there's, here's some guy. It was 1982, yeah. And 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 I guess you know he had already been on like one or two times prior to that. But that's the most I know about that. All right, now onto your experience because this is the moment. And uh, yeah, that was thirty thirty one years ago, thirty three years ago. Jesus Christ, yeah. as, almost as long as Letterman's uh, actual run. Yeah. So so uh, tell me, yes, uh, like. 
you know, how was this show different than uh, than the others? Was it like, you know, what was the vibe? What was what was it like? Well, it, it was crazy because I when I go to these shows, you know, I always get there early. It's how I'm about I'm early, early, early. And you had to come by to pick your tickets up at two o'clock. Well, of course, I was there at quarter one. And but there was maybe a dozen people in line ahead of me. But there was a throng of media, both on one side of the street and on the other side of the street. And I saw sure. I saw CNN there. Entertainment Tonight was there. All the local affiliates was, were there. You know, there was uh, people from uh, Sweden, some Japanese stations, and they were interviewing people online, saying, "How'd you get tickets?" Any wishes for Dave? And it, it was it was different than I ever saw before. Uh, it, did you do any? Uh, did you do any media? Well, it, it was weird. I, I like I wanted to talk to somebody, but it's like I'm usually kind of quiet. But then actually, a reporter from the New York Post. Came up to me and, and, and talked to me. Although I don't think I actually made anything that I've seen online about it. Okay, so that's too bad because yeah, I did remember seeing on your Facebook feed that you'd spoken to somebody from the Post. I wanted it to be like TV Sweden. We're here with us. <laughs> I, I I did see a picture the New York Daily News online took of me. They're pi- oh, that's great! They must have actually been inside the theater because to picture me going in to get my ticket, and it's like. That's crazy. So I, that's that's kind of cool. I did that, but uh, wow, yeah, it was really really nuts with all the media around. I'm sure. No, that's really cool. How about in the audience? Were there any celebrities in the audience? Um, actually, in the row in front of me was Alan Coulter's mother, the announcer. <laughs> yeah. That counts. All right, yeah, that that's, was kind of cool. And that is cool. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't see anybody else in the audience except when they stood up. I mean, when they introduced that, you know, his his wife and son were in the audience. I didn't know that until that time because I was on the other side of the yeah. theater at that time. Yeah, I, you know, my heart went out to the kid. I like, and I know he. I remember him being on a, and they showed a clip even yep. when uh, Foo Fighters were playing at the end and stuff of Harry when he was a little kid. Yep. But yeah, I, I'm sure that like I'm like, oh man. Like, I don't know. I, I wonder how much of that he processed. And great line about, you know, and of course, Harry wants me to introduce his best friend. <laughs> Tommy Roboto or whatever. Tommy Roboto. What an awesome name. <laughs> that's so fantastic. And that's why, like, Letterman is so, like, giddy with himself that even at, the, like, his last seconds and stuff, he still he can still pull one out of his ass. Yeah. And Tommy Roboto. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, man. No, that's fantastic. Very, very cool, man. Jesus, I I'm stunned. I really am. It was it was such a great show. Oh my god, it was. And you know, we had seen that there were huge trailers parked out on the street. Figure, well, okay, there's got to be some celebrities here. And I was going through mind, who's going to be here? Who's going to be here? And nobody occurred to me. So I was happily, and I don't like surprises. I mean, I don't like to be spoiled. So I was happy to see it happen on stage. Here comes Alec Baldwin. Here's Barbara Walters. Here's Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, that that was great. All of them, yeah. I was gonna say so, um, including that night. Like, who was who's the biggest star that you saw in Letterman? Would it have been um, from the final show, or were there other oh, ones that you were like, God. "Oh, I can't." Well, let me go to the database here. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah, rattle off some. Well, let's see. I, I saw Mary Tyler Moore. I saw her twice. Wow. Uh, saw Mike Myers twice. I actually saw Charles Grodin on one of my episodes. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I saw Regis. Of course, you got to go see Regis. Of course, uh, George Clooney. Uh, cool. I actually, is, uh, less than two weeks after 9-11, I actually saw Mayor Giuliani at, uh, at one of the tapings. That was wow. that was a really – Was it the first show back? or No, it was about a, about a week afterwards. I'm too, too, well, okay. actually, see, it's dated here September 24th, 2001. Okay. Uh, it was Mayor, Mayor Giuliani and Miss America. So that was, that was a show. 
Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw Ringo Starr perform wow. a song about Liverpool. In the wow. that, that was cool. That was that was one of the highlights. Obviously, I, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think seeing a Beatle counts, man. Absolutely, yeah. man. That's 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 definitely up there. Yeah. Jesus Christ, that's awesome. Yeah. Holy shit! And how about like, uh, do you? Were there comedians that you saw that became famous after you saw? Them? Well, I'm looking at my database. I didn't really see too many comedians there. A lot of bands, but the only comedian I remember seeing up there is Rita Rudner, and she already made it by the time I saw her. Sure. Sure. Because you know, and that's that's interesting. Because I remember during the Conan J wars, uh, some of the uh, some of the stuff that would talk. I mean, that's really when I don't know how many uh, stand up podcasts you listen to, but I love much like all of us getting on and and you know either talking about good things or even bitching about stuff. It's hilarious hearing the comedians just talk about the business. Mm-hmm. And um, they were talking about how Leno didn't break a lot of comedians on his show and that Letterman still did. And I know he did on occasion and stuff. Right. And it's, it's certainly more during the NBC years. Definitely more during the NBC. Oh yeah. I mean, of course, you know, you know, Seinfeld, but he had, you know, um, Oh my God, Sam Kinison, when he had Sam Kinison on his show. Yes. Oh, just amazing. You know, Gilbert Gottfried, uh, Brother, Brother, Brother Theodore. Theodore. Oh my God. Yeah. His performances were legendary. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Huh? How's your summer been? Oh, season in hell. <laughs> I just remember him saying that on one show. Oh my God. What a crazy performance art, dude. You know, like if you had Brother, Brother Theodore and Andy Kaufman on a double bill, oh, you were going to stay night, basically. And actually, I loved Leno when he was a guest on Letterman. He was oh amazing. Oh, what's what's your beef? You know, what's my beef? It was it was wonderful because, of course, hey, they know each other for years. You know, it really grinds my gears, uh, David, if I may. Uh, <laughs> no, I know it's it. No, he was he was fantastic. I saw him um, in jo- he came to Joliet, just south of Chicago to uh, one of our big uh, suburban theaters, the Rialto Square. We got to meet him backstage, couldn't have been nicer. And this was during the Letterman years and stuff. And, yeah, you know, it's it, – did you see uh, the Louis where uh, it was three parts and he supposedly was going to take over for Letterman? Oh, I did not ago? see that. It's excellent. It's from season three, and it's a 90-minute – it's a three-part episode. It could have been made into an independent movie. <laughs> and Leno – and Leno refers to those days on with, you know, Dave and stuff and says, you know, you can't be the edgy guy if you're on five nights a week. And I would say that Dave kind of proved the contrary to that, it, 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 despite what Leno says. And, I mean, that's the great thing is how the show changed. But Letterman really, uh, through the end, was always Letterman, just like Johnny and stuff. And, like, you know, he, he didn't do the – going around town, but he was in his sixties and he had had heart surgery and stuff. So yeah. like when he's, when he slowed down, do you ever read, did you read like the Bill Carter books? Or anything oh yeah. Absolutely. I've devoured those when they, well, the, the first, not, not the second with Letterman, I mean with Leno and uh, Conan, but the first one. Too, really? Okay. Yeah, Cause it's got a lot of Dave stuff. I mean, it much like the, the original, the books we're talking about are uh, the late show. Well, the, 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 the late shift, right? That a boy, the late shift, which was made into the HBO movie. Oh, and about that HBO movie. Oh, when it first aired, I loved it because the guy who they had playing Letterman had like orange hair, and Letterman would just get on the show and talk about they can't find somebody with my hair. Thought so he was going on. Yeah. Like, oh man, he... it's it's uh, John. I want to say John Michael Higgins. That's right. 
really funny actor yeah. made all the Christopher, you know, several of the Christopher Guest movies, and really, despite the hair color, <laughs> I think does I think did a really credible job as Letterman. Yeah. I, I I like that movie a lot. Yeah. I got to be. I mean, it's it's a it's kind of a cartoon, but it's also purposely Betty Thomas, uh, Second City uh, alum, directed Private Parts. Directed that late shift movie, yeah. and uh, she was uh, she was in Hill Street Blues. Oh, yeah. She was one of the cops in Hill Street Blues. But a really great com- uh, directed the Brady Bunch movie. So you know, I mean, it's it, I think the late shift is like that as a movie. The books are amazing, and my God, you forget it's not just about Johnny stepping down and Jay and Dave, but you get Arsenio Hall's rise, you get the rise and fall of, of Thick of the Night. Oh. I mean, any any kind of late night programming, and that second Bill Carter book. That's more specifically about the Leno Conan uh, fight. There's a lot of interesting Dave stuff in there and just about how his work schedule changed after the heart attack. And um, he really, you know, like and in fact, I think I, I even asked you online because I had heard that he was doing instead of doing. Uh, his Friday show Thursday night, he was doing two shows on Mondays for a while. And you could, Bill Carter talked about it in the book that you could tell by the monologue that the Friday show was obviously taped a couple days earlier because there really was no of the moment kind of stuff in the monologue. Yeah. They did that for a little while and then they went to actually doing the two shows on Thursday the way they, Friday show would be a little more current. Good. Well, that's good. That's good. Did you ever go to any of those, uh, Record on Monday for Friday. Uh, shows. Yeah, you know, you asked me about that. I couldn't find it in my database that I did, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so okay, no, I'm honestly, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and people, I, well, regular listeners of Comic Geek Speak know that your nickname Pants comes from you having the crew jacket from World. Oh Comics. yeah, yeah. Oh, and that's another thing. eBay is just all over with people putting up jackets and memorabilia. The people, I don't know if you saw this. The day, the day after the last taping, the Thursday, the 21st of May, you know, that showbiz, they have to take the theater, to dismantle it. The new shows come in, they got to, so they're, rip, right. they're ripping the theater up and putting things in dumpsters, you know, part to the set, oh. seats, and people are diving, I'm putting this up on eBay. Oh. <laughs> Pants, that's like, you. I'm surprised that you didn't like spend a day in New York and just kind of scouted out the dumpsters. You know, again, had that's I, you know, hindsight's 2020 now, of course, but... Uh, yeah, that's crazy. Just you know, here's a piece of the set. Here's a here's an armor from a chair. Here's a here's a cushion from a chair. It's crazy. Well, that's not enough. You got to be like Kramer on Seinfeld and have like Paul Murphy. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Get the whole set back <laughs> and, 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 and get Jim Fowler to come to your house. <laughs> that's right. Where are the cameras? Cameras. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a. Do you know about the book? Uh, Bendis told me about this book. There's a great oral history about the NBC Letterman show that is free if you've got uh, an Amazon Prime Kindle account. Oh, stop. I swear to God, it's fantastic. Oh, you're killing me here. Oh, no. And it's so and also, I mean, just to get it and stuff digitally, if you've got a, a Kindle reader and stuff, I mean, it is only like two ninety nine or something like that. But it was great. It was really, really interesting. And also one of my thrills um, – Meryl Marco. Oh, uh, yeah. actually, you know, I follow her on Twitter because she's so damn funny. And um, she wasn't sure if she should see John uh, uh, Warlord of Mars, John Carter. She's like, John Carter, should I? And I'm like, yes. I, she's like, really? I don't know. I, you know, she goes, I'm hearing bad things. And I'm like, yeah, I said, but they just marketed it wrong. I go, if you're just looking for like a fun 
you know, sci-fi action movie, it really is. And she's like, all right, I'll try it. And I'm like, oh, my God, Meryl Marco. <laughs> oh, my God. Because hey, she was right there at the beginning, and so much of her is in those early years of, of uh, well, the Letterman Morning Show and for late night. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah man, the elevator races and oh. uh, Chinese waiter races. That was one of my favorites <laughs> with the Chinese restaurants. Yeah. And they pit them against each other. Who's going to who's gonna deliver first? Oh, uh, may we see your photos? Oh, may we see <laughs> your photos, please? <laughs> Good stuff. You know what I didn't hear on the last show and I was hoping, and maybe they did it uh, as they were leading up to it, was uh, Paul singing Bermuda. <laughs> That's what I remember. Stuff like that. And, of course, I mean, you know, Bud Melman, of course, Larry Bud. Larry Bud came to Illinois State, my college. And did a did a, a campus show with um, Emo Phillips. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, that's a bill. now that's a bill. Yeah, no kidding, man. And 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 I mean, Larry Bud, it was bad. It was horrible, but it was Larry Bud, and he couldn't have been sweeter. Yeah, he's such a tiny little man, very very nice, and yeah. just enjoying the whole ride. It's like, all right, he's not, he's on a college tour. We, I mean, I discovered Pee Wee Herman through uh, Letterman. Yeah. And he came to Illinois State and stuff. I mean, that's just like you, Pants. I watched that morning show. Um, I loved, I loved it from the start. And I was a junior in high school when he got the eleven, the uh, the twelve thirty show, and it was eleven thirty here, so it was a little easier for us to stay up and even you know catch the first half hour. And then, of course, it was the early VCR age, so we uh, we had a VCR, so we would tape Letterman and. and uh, Watch it the next day. Oh, so you have me at a disadvantage, sir. Um, I didn't actually. <laughs> I didn't discover Letterman until the summer of 1984. Uh, okay, so that was during they had the Summer Olympics on ABC. They were in Los Angeles, so I would stay up late and watch Olympic highlights during the summer months. And during commercial, I flip around and what's this thing on NBC? Oh, this this looks interesting, and that's when I got hooked on Letterman. <laughs> but I I didn't have a VCR, so I started high school in the fall. So what I would do every day for the next three years for high school, I would come home from school, take a nap before dinner so I could stay up late to 1.30 to watch Letterman. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. Man. Holy cow. And then for graduation, I got a VCR for, for graduation present in 1987. <laughs> That's cool. Hilarious, man. And those rock, those primetime rock specials he would have. Oh, yes. Stuff. 90 you minutes. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Rock and Roll. That's I remember right, it's like, Mr. Rock in one and t- roll. they put the Chiron in front of his in front of because I am, and then it would come up. Mr. <laughs> and then I discovered the Beatles. Oh my and, god! And I told Buddy Holly, "How about calling it Peggy Sue?" <laughs> Killed me. Oh no, he was he's the man. And God, did you see online um, the Paley Center interview he did with Seinfeld? Oh, you know. I used to actually belong to that before it became that. I think it was called Museum of TV and Radio. I let my subscription lapse. Oh, I, okay. I got, you give me gold here, John. I got to look up all this stuff now. You do. You really do. Because and that will because my point is, and everyone's saying it, and it sounds like he's leaning this way anyway, that, okay, you know, he'll probably take, you know, the rest of the year off or who knows. But I really do hope he does uh, come back and do some sort of long-form interview because – that is great. It is like about an hour and ten minutes long, and you get before they get to the Q and A with the with the people in attendance, just fifty minutes of Letterman interviewing Seinfeld in conversation, and it's great. And he is such a pro. And really, coming from radio, um, 
that's the thing, and everyone points it out. He, you, you know, Carson was the man, and Letterman's the first one to say it as well. All the great talk show hosts have their own interesting uh, characteristics that really made them stand out. And, uh, you know, Letterman was the consummate broadcaster, and that's not to diminish the comedy, but that's the thing is he could, like, he was so on as as just the best interviewer when he wanted to be and and could really tear somebody apart in a very funny and and great way. I mean, god, McCain or well, not well, uh not McCain. McCain never did show up on the show, did he? Well, he showed up a little bit later, but he was oh, guess- skewing him as it was happening because of the CBS live feed from the news. That's right. Yeah, cuz he was talking to Katie Couric and stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. The Paris Hilton interview. Oh. <laughs> and the way she was out of jail and stuff. I mean, that's the thing. The guy was just so good at towing the line of, all right, I am depantsing this person right now, <laughs> but uh, you can't say, you, you can't call me a complete asshole and I'm doing it without getting nasty. And, you know, I mean, it's being, being kind of Dave, but, you know, I mean, because I always thought Cher, when she called him an asshole, it was like, oh, get over yourself. <laughs> I, You know, because seriously, she came picking for a fight or whatever, and it's like, come on, gee, I'm sorry, I'm Cher. I'm wearing a tiara. I'm wearing a pyramid on my head. Some of the crazy <laughs> shit she used to wear. And it's like, and you don't think if you sit down to have an, inter- an interview with somebody, they're not going to mention this shit? Mm-hmm. Good God, get over yourself, weirdo. <laughs> so, you weirdo. <laughs> so, no, I, lo- I, you know, I, I love Dave. Dave's amazing. But, yeah, I'm telling you, that Seinfeld thing will, will make you know that he should continue doing everything that he told Regis Philbin to do. Did you see that? That's another thing to look for. Um, what's his face? The British guy that uh, had the show after Larry King. Oh, I can't God, that guy who used to be on. Piers. Piers Morgan. Yeah, Piers Morgan, right, right. Piers Morgan was off one night, and uh, Regis interviewed Letterman. And it's a great conversation. That I think I did see somewhere on, on the YouTube, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And and Letterman the whole time is like, you know, this is great. This is what you should be doing. And I would say the exact same thing to Letterman. Yeah. And also another great conversation, uh, Alec Baldwin's podcast. Oh, here's the thing. Yeah, I heard he's on there, I think, twice, I think, yeah. It's great. Yes. It's I think it's the same conversation. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was because originally it was just like an hour with him. Right. And and then they repackaged uh, Baldwin's show and they would have two guests per hour. Oh, and okay. I, so there's a shorter version. But yeah, oh, it's so fantastic. Very interesting. And he refers to himself as duck lips. So you got <laughs> duck lips over here. Yeah. Oh, man. So good stuff, dude. You're killing me. Any any fun musical guests like joined the band? Did you ever see like a night that Lou Reed might be playing with them? I actually saw two nights where they had Warren Zevon sitting in for Paul. Oh wow, they were talking about that. Uh, on, uh, man, you know, yeah, I love Zevon. Tragic, yeah. yeah. Oof. And uh, that's uh, it was great because he would get giddy over Zevon. He get, he got all giddy. He has all those celebrities on. For that top ten. And Peyton Manning, you know, is the one that he's just like, hey, it's Peyton Manning. He just couldn't get over that. It was amazing. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Oh, I love when he does stuff like that. Too funny, man. Well, there you go. So that's the Letterman stuff. I I am very envious, uh, Pants. Congratulations on uh, enjoying that as much as you have. And uh, I, I... like I said, I, I hope, and I'm sure you do as well, that he's one of the exceptions that does come back and continues to broadcast because I think he's great at it. Maybe you'll be another podcaster. What do you think? <laughs> uh, you know, some sort of new media, the way that, you know, Seinfeld does comedians and coffee. That's the thing. They talk mostly about that in this Paley Center uh, conversation from last summer. And um, 
you know, he just keeps raving about this is great. This is exactly what you should be doing. And it sounds like with a bit of envy that he could likely do it as well. And I'm sure he would. I mean, you know, I'm sure he could find some blue chip sponsor the way Seinfeld did with uh, the car company. Oh, yeah. Accurate. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, that's that's just smart. And and God, like I said, if anything, I, I'd hope it'd be longer. I keep wanting Dick Cavett to come back and do more regular things. They, you know, the other great thing, and this uh, what I love about streaming media, is um, we're getting beyond conventions. We're just talking to Crystal Skillman about what happened at DenverCon. But you're getting all these great kind of public con-like panels that are being videotaped for bookstores or for book expos or just uh, – Whatever, just a live performance. Maybe it's supporting public radio or public television or something. But um, and that they're putting that stuff on YouTube. And there's just really, really good programming. And Cavett, you know, as retired as he is, you know, still shows up. And you know, he he'll be the moderator for. Yeah, here's Peter, Peter Bagdanovich. Let's talk. To <laughs> you know, Martin Short. He did one with Marty, Martin Short. I mean, you know, those things are great. And uh, God, a, I'd love to see Letterman do. Stuff like that because he's a master. He could read the phone book and I'd watch that. I mean, that, that's all it is to it. <laughs> yeah, really, that'd be interesting if he did just come back and do just pure comedy and stuff like that. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. Go back to the old stuff. I don't know, though. Uh, that's, I'm not sure. And, you know, Parr did come back a little bit. He did, yeah. In the 70s, and it just it wasn't the same. But I think Parr was more of a variety show host that I mean, well, and that's not even fair to Parr because I've seen some of those amazing in-depth interviews he did with Robert Kennedy uh, right after, you know, literally like six months after JFK had, had been assassinated or Richard Burton and really intimate conversations. Judy Garland, a really interesting conversation with Judy Garland. So he was capable of those kinds of interviews, but it was – it was just an option. I don't know. Well, as Steve Allen as well. I mean, I love Steve Allen. Mm-hmm. I think he's an incredibly smart guy. And that's the thing. I just really admire those guys. And Letterman absolutely is in the team picture. And it's it's going to be interesting to see as the as the current crop gets older, how many of them can a want would want to stay in you know in as they reach middle age. I mean, you know, I I know Kimmel is in his forties. Colbert is in his 40s, certainly starting off, will be starting off as there. How about James uh, Croydon or whatever? What James you Corden. Corden uh, I watch a couple of shows, and you know he seems to be well at ease with himself, and they've got like, a different thing each night, so they're, they're trying different things. Uh, it's just uh, – I'm also a big fan of Craig Ferguson, and it's hard for me to watch that knowing how great Craig Ferguson was at what he did. But it's, it's a sure. different show altogether. He's got a band now and everything, so I – I don't know. I, I think I'm getting maybe a little too old for the, the late night thing right now. But uh, I don't know. I, I will probably at least initially just check out Colbert. But other than that, I've got five hours a week free now to do other things. <laughs> yeah, CBS is making it easier, too. I, oh, yeah. I, we were saying before we started recording our part now that I'm like, what's with the mentalist, man? <laughs> of, of all of all hours to fill the hour with it stuff, here's the mentalist. Like, I'm like, wow. Yeah, it's like crime time after crime time after prime time again for like twenty some years ago. Yeah, the Canadian uh, the Canadian yes. TV show Forever <laughs> Night and uh, what, what was it Nightbeat? Oh yeah, my god! I might have been that. Oh jeez. Oh no, that was uh, good stuff. Prime time, crime time. <laughs> well, good stuff. I, I mean, I guess once Lemon's done, you know, they can't have more repeats. So, but come on, you know, the Mentalist really? I, I don't know. <laughs> 
I guess they've only got an hour, and I mean, it is a popular show, yeah. so. All right, I suppose. But yeah, it's killing me. You know, and I like uh, I like James better as an actor because I thought he was funny as hell on those Doctor. Oh Hanks. yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, very very funny. So so all right, I, and there's another thing to talk about, Pants. I knew we'd, I'd beyond podcasting stuff. I wanted to, I really wanted to talk to you about Letterman, but I knew other stuff would come up. Doctor Who. So um, what do you think of Capaldi now that uh, full full season under his uh, belt? I, I enjoyed it very much. He uh, grew on me. You know, I didn't know what to expect going in. I, I just saw he's actually going to be going to Comic Con and doing a panel this this I saw year. That. Yeah, I saw that too. I, I caught that uh, today as we we're talking. Um, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm I mean, I'm still willing to you know let him grow on me some more. But Matt Smith and uh, and uh, what's this? Well, all three of them really. Eccleston, um, Tenet, Tenet, and, Tenet and uh, Smith all grew on me a lot faster than Capaldi, and I and I I like him enough as an actor. I'm, I mean, that's the thing. I was already a fan of his, Jesus, 30 years ago. He's in a Local Hero, that Burt Lancaster movie that was shot oh, in Scotland. And wow. he's and he's, he's a teenager in that movie. Oh, or if or, or, or early 20s. Mm-hmm. And and also cool that he was a fan as a kid yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. So I mean I know he's one of us and I'm and I'm rooting for him, but I don't I don't know. I think there's something about the writing. And also, much like as much as I loved uh Rory and uh and uh, Amy I, I was kind of sick of them by by their last season, and I got a, and I love Clara; she's adorable. Yeah. But I'm also like, all right, enough with Clara. Let's go. Hmm. She, they got I really think a doc, I think each doctor needs like a fresh, you know, start and everything. I mean, as and it's weird. Like even even Tennant and Rose, and and where everything went with Tennant and Rose, um, I always thought of a, like, yeah, Rose is more Eccleston. For me, in the back of my mind, it's always your first doctor or whatever. Right. And that, you know, when you're with more than one doctor, it's like, yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm so new to who it's it's tough for me to look anything so critically. I mean, I understand the, the fan fervor. It's been around for like 52 years now, but I'm just enjoying it. And it's just, I, oh, yeah. You know, I, I love the interaction between Clara and uh, the new doctor. I really enjoy that. That's cool. Well, and I know you've been uh, getting your opportunities to go and and uh, to England and uh, check out the uh, Doctor Who experiences over there. Yes, correct? yeah. I'm gonna try to go again now. I this year, unfortunately, when I was over there, it was closed. When I was over there, oh, too bad. But uh, I'm gonna try to go next year because they did. Re- when I first saw it uh, last year, they had you know it was Matt Smith there, and now of course new Doctor, new exhibit. <laughs> hey, I should ask. Um, because you're part of that London Super Show. Yes. Compare it to the American shows. What what what's different about them? Because I've gotten the European perspective on the London Super Show, and they're like it's very much like an American con. So how is it more like a British or, or a foreign con than it? Or I should say, uh, how is it different from an American con? It, you know. Well. First of all, it's the London Super Comic Convention. Must get that plug in there correctly. Please, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, their ideal, their the idea behind the whole show is to put on an American style show in the UK. That was their idea, so it is right. more American based. Uh, it's it's very very comic centric. They really don't have much other than the comics. There, they have a lot of dealers. Uh, they have a lot of creators. You know, both from the US sure. and the UK. And the cool thing is. I don't think many other UK shows bring over the quantity and quality of US guests that that this show does because you know they know so many people. I know I hope I was with them some people. 
Uh, you know, but like U.S. shows, they've got panels that deal with the creators who are there. They've got a huge cosplay uh, devotion to that part of the show. Um, it's so it is in the style of a lot of the American comic centric shows over there, but actually in the U.K. Okay, but the, the, there there are no differences that stand out to you beyond beyond geographically, obviously, and the pool of people that are equally accessible to the Americans that you guys bring over. And Not a whole lot. I mean, there's a lot more of okay. politeness over there because of her. Well, that's good. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're so polite over there, and they, they tolerate me because I'm a Yankee over there. It's like, oh, yeah, very nice to see you. And it's oh, With a dumb, a lot, a lot of che- I, I get a lot of cheers. Cheers, mate. I get that a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. See, I always tell um, – at one of the early San Diego comic book podcast panels, someone from the audience, a British woman, perfect diction, is like, you know, I'm, I would like to start a uh, podcast, but I'm worried that my accent might be off-putting to an American audience. And I'm like, ma'am, it's your language. We're the farmers that dumped it down. <laughs> you know, and it's true. I mean, so, no, I, I know. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, they're there. It's all right. <laughs> You'll forgive my American friend who prefers to be barefoot. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, all right, here we are. Where's the chips? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Um, how are things going over at uh, Comic Geek Speak Land? You stepped away for a while and then you came back. I did, yeah. I, I stepped away. I, I just didn't have uh, – this was back in – oh, my God, I think in September uh, – after, after New York Comic Con in 2013 in October, I was just sort of – sort of burned out and I was just losing interest in, you know, comics in general and didn't really feel I had a lot to talk about. I mean, I still kept in touch with the guys and I came on occasion, but I I guess I just bit up more than I could chew with doing the whole show by myself with taking on the producer role and everything. And so I stepped away and I had intended on, you know, pretty much staying away. But then, um, you know, fortunately once a good friend, Jamie D passed away, you know, it brought us all yeah. back together again, and yeah. I got the fire with under me again, and I'm having a I'm having a blast. And now that we <laughs> we've got video cameras in the studio now, it's like yeah, oh yeah, my god! Oh no, this is I gotta be honest, pants is my opportunity. You know, it's all the thrills of a comic book podcast with the added excitement of convenience store security cameras. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's in its infancy. You know, we're we're still getting our our, our sea legs. You know, we, we have a, a um, like a webcam. We're going to try to get close-up shots of comics. Um, we're going to renovate nice. the studio around. There's, there's a lot of ideas. We're still getting the kinks worked out. So, hey, you know. that's that's great and good for you guys. And I think that's very uh, honest. Not that it's dishonest to do it otherwise. But, no, you guys, you know, it's a work in progress. And I think that's great. No, it's um, – I, I have watched it. It's just kind of fun. Yeah. You got to – but and you guys right now are still like, all right, wait, I'm out of the shot. Hey, put me in the shot. <laughs> well, it's like it's like an eight millimeter movie with the family and stuff like that. Harvey, if you're gonna show the cake, tilt the cake to the camera. Uh, yeah. The hell's the matter? With yeah, you? I get that. I mean, the idea behind it is initially, well, you know, it's sort of like uh, the Howard Stern E Show, basically, you just just cameras sure. recording it. You know, you know, we may get guests in the studio at some point. We may be able to show clips and things, but it, it's it's all work in progress. As I. Reach into the ground. That's one thing I, I got from Letterman is beating things in the ground. I keep saying over and over again, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. So that's where I get it from. <laughs> no, that's great. Congratulations. I think that I think that's fantastic. And it's a nice way to uh, get things going in the 10th year and everything. Yeah. We're all uh, we're all enjoying. Comic Geek Speak was on about three months before Word Balloon. Yeah. I mean, of course, you had a long career in broadcasting, but as far as actual podcast well, goes, yeah. 
Well, and I, I mean, it's not like I was doing uh, what what I do on Word Balloon as far as uh, comic book stuff. Right. I wasn't doing that on radio. No, I, uh, you know, that's cool. Um, I That's awesome. I mean, how many shows are really, you know, can go back to 10 years? I always, uh, and I think I've told you this before, I always kind of crap on the on the shows that like, oh, hey, man, we've been doing this a really long time. Really? Since when? Oh, 2011. Mm. And it's like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Give me a break. And I always say, no, if 2005, you're part of the Mercury 7. That's right. <laughs> That's the original astronauts, man. We're like the we're like the uh, yeah, Alan Shepard's and your uh, Gus Grissom's and stuff like that. <laughs> Not even Neil Armstrong, even pre-Neil Armstrong and stuff. I, always, I used to – Neesman used to get really mad at me because he's like, oh, we started really early, 2006. I'm like, you're like the Gen- Gemini 9. <laughs> uh, to me. No way. Hey, well, we had crush on our show early on doing stuff. What's that? We had Chris Neesman on our show early on doing stuff. So there like, you yeah. go. Oh, that's right. He came. That's I forgot that. He, uh, that's right. He those guys started around comics, doing interviews for comics. That's history. right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go, man. The history. Oh. The history is is so fascinating to me of podcasting. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that now you know it's funny that the mainstream is starting to wake up more with the success of Serial and um, Serial. Yeah, the public radio podcast. Do you know about that show? Obviously not. not. <laughs> oh my man, it's a no, it's it's a true crime documentary that was made by National Public Radio producers, um, and it, I believe they were This American Life producers, and it took off and like literally like millions of downloads, and it was the podcast success story of 2014 and and you know they they just really went on about how like isn't this amazing because podcasting itself i think you know adam curry and that that was like 2004 is when he started Mm -hmm. i I know that uh, on on uh on your show as well brian deemer always points out the uh the article that was in wired magazine in uh february of uh you know and i remember reading that as well and uh, you know it's yeah, that's kind of when you know everyone I think kind of was inspired to say, "Oh, hey, this would be the time to do it." So that it was interesting that literally, you know, ten years uh, after podcasting's debut, that finally a show is starting to really break through beyond the techies and the geek culture that has been aware of you know podcasting all these years yeah. and support the whole the whole business. So yeah, that like now finally, no, it seems like uh, a lot more people know what podcasting is and don't need one of us to explain. That's it. good. That's always a good thing. Yeah. Well, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it's, a, you know, still a matter of technology, um, you know, have being, uh, being on phones and on, and on uh, tablets helps. Um, the car technology is the real uh, problem. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that car manufacturers make contracts with uh, the people that, you know, put in their, their entertainment technology and they kind of purposely are like five to seven years of, and it's not going to change mm-hmm. to kind of ensure that, you know, the stuff they make doesn't, you know, get that. They're not always going back to making better, you know, um, stereos that can do more um, because the technology demands it. Cars have always been able to kind of put a stranglehold and really hold technology back. Well, those days are over, as you know, you know, as far as computers and things like that and handheld devices. So, uh, yeah, I think cars kind of lag in in terms of that technology. You can dock your iPhone in or your play. Right, right, right. But, you know, that's still not that's still not as easy as turning your radio on and and turning on a a radio station. Yep. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) The more you know. 
Exactly. No thoughts on that? All right, fair enough. No worries. All right, let's let's flip over the cards to Muppets uh, pants. Muppets for for $250. New Zealand or San the Eagle? Who wins in an all you know, no holds barred fight? Oh boy. Hmm. Oh, I'm going with I'm going with the boomerang fish. I got to be honest. Well, yeah, 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 you have a point there. I'll, I I concur now. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, you know, Sam's got the size and the reach and everything, but Lou actually has reach, but but Lou's got the pitch. I love Lou. Lou Zealand is my favorite oddball, like Muppet. Oh god! Like not you know not regular of the non regular right stuff right. Like so who's your favorite obscure Muppet? Uh, well, I guess he's not really. I like Ralph, but I guess Ralph isn't really that obscure, is he? Though I guess I love. Yeah, you see, I love Ralph. Yeah, I th- I think of Ralph as part of the late, especially Ralph's pre Muppet. You know, he's the first. He's he's the Golden Age Superman of the Muppet universe. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yep, uh, that's right. Uh, 1938, Joe Schuster came to me. <laughs> that's a pretty good Ralph. Come on, man. That's for, for a, you're a man of a thousand voices. You're, you're the poor man's rich little. I am the poor. <laughs> I'm even poorer than that. That was weird. I, I, have you seen that Letterman clip, Rich Little? Uh, God, I, I, doesn't ring a bell. You know, I he was there's and I meant to tell you this earlier in the in the interview or the conversation. There's a podcast called the Carson Podcast. Yes, have you heard? Uh, I, I actually that, that's where they interview people who've been on the show, right? Yes. Yeah, I heard a few of those. I, I, again, I'm woefully behind my podcast listening. But. There's um, I can't remember now if there's. I thought he did. Yeah, he did do one with Rich Little. I, I was going to say I'm pretty sure that's where I heard Rich Little recently, and he just talked about how. Like at one point in the eighties, they just stopped booking him, and um, he—I uh, mean, this is his side. You know, who knows if there's like a real story to this in terms of like why he suddenly fell out of favor during the Reagan era uh, after being so like everywhere in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Every Dean Martin celebrity roast, and you know Sullivan, and all the variety shows and everything. Um, but he did a Letterman appearance in like two thousand six, and it is hokey. I'll be honest. It's definitely old showbiz and stuff, but it's interesting to see. And like, wow, it's weird that, yeah, Letterman finally like kind of had him on in 06. I was just listening um, yesterday to uh, Melissa Rivers on with uh, Jay Moore on Jay Moore's podcast. And they were talking about uh, Joan Rivers being, you know, obviously never booked on uh, on Carson. Right. And I, I can't remember. Did she do Letterman? Oh, yeah. She did one like just last year. Did she do one right before she passed away? Yeah, wow. very, very. I mean, she said a joke. I forget what it was. It, it let me actually walked off the stage in, 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 in faux disgust. Yeah. But sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that because that was weird because uh, they talked about how Leno kind of continued the ban for a really long time. And wow. everything. I, maybe, maybe, for, maybe through the entire run. I don't know. But that, like, Melissa has run into Jay since her mother's death and everything. And that, yeah, it was like really awkward or whatever. Mm. So, but uh, (laughs) yeah, okay. That's cool. But yeah, rich little of all people, I was going to say, that's weird. You know, he's, I don't know. They stopped calling me. (laughs) And then he, uh, he did, of course, Johnny on the uh, late shift movie. He talked about that. That's right. You'd like that. No, that Carson podcast is really, really interesting and gets really, really minutiae. I mean, the guy who would hold the curtain, for Johnny 
as Johnny would hit the stage, he is interviewed. Oh, my God. I'll look at some of the ones that I haven't listened to. There's uh, James Randi, Jim Fowler, uh, Fred Silverman, Ed Ames. They talked to Ed Ames? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah, the famous Tomahawk in the Nuts. Exactly. Oh. Ah, stuff. Amazing Kreskin. I'll see now. See, yep. I mean, if I am not careful, I will just listen to podcasts 24 hours a day because there's so much content out that I want to listen to. Is it seriously, man? I mean, and you know, because we come from that time when the Marvel movies would be on Channel 2 or CBS and suck. Like with the <laughs> Red, Red Brown Captain America. And guess what? As sucky as it was, that was like the moment of the summer where it's like, oh my God, they're showing the Captain America movie. I know it sucks, but it's Captain America. <laughs> and now we're in this embarrassment of riches of like everything, let alone superhero stuff that, like I said, you and I could get excited about the amazing Randy and, and, uh, and Kreska yeah. being, on, being on podcast. Oh interviews. We're like, yeah, <laughs> I know what I'm doing today. Exactly. They, I'm just amazed they're still around. It's still still alive, quite frankly. They fall off the face of the earth. No, they're still alive, getting stuff done. Good for them. You know, uh, Randy kept coming up because of uh, Penn Jillette and um, oh yeah, and they ta- and actually I heard Penn Jillette talk about Randy and um, Carson, and I think Randy's the guy who told uh, Car- um, Penn Jillette and Paul Provenza when they were making the Aristocrats that Johnny had passed away. I think they're the ones that called. Oh. Him. Like, well. But yeah, or you know, uh, or or that Penn was the one who called Randy. But you know, Randy, big magician, and Johnny. I mean, that's the thing. Like they all like knew each other. Like Johnny was a magician. Yeah, yeah. And loved these guys, and that's why, like you know, Penn Jillette was an intimate of Johnny's, and the amazing Randy, you know, as well. So it's kind of neat to see, like, kind of go through the generations. So I love that stuff. Or I love, like, I've been reading a, a Dick Cavett book and how he would pal around with Groucho in the sixties. Oh yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, my, and, and Woody Allen. And it's like, all right, there you go. Good stuff. Dick Cavett, one of the few people who hosted a talk show where someone died during the show. That's right. <laughs> I've, heard him, I've heard him talk about that. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. So, no, I love those. Those are great DVDs, those Cavett interviews. They're, uh, they've got ones for comedians. They've got ones for old Hollywood. And then they've got all the music guests. Here's Sly and the Family Stupid. <laughs> awesome. So, and I, if I'll leave you with this pants, if you want to see hilarious Sly and the Family Stone talk show appearances, look for them on Mike Douglas because he was always whacked out on LSD. Or something. <laughs> he, I mean, no, he's he, he is flying on some sort of substance, and like it'd be like, so Spike, you're gonna be going down to Vegas? <laughs> well, you know, we use bases in the television. <laughs> Complete non sequitur answers and stuff. And, All right, that's fantastic. How about another song? Mike would just roll with it. Mike Douglas. Oh so, my all god! All right, all right. I've uh, I've disintegrated to Dada uh, pants, so I will uh, I, we we will wrap up. But uh, I uh, I'm glad to uh, talk to you, and I'm sorry that we didn't see more of each other at C two E two. But uh, hopefully, uh, maybe New York. Yeah, hoping to see up in New York again. Okay, good deal. I'll be I'll be there in New York, uh, not for a special edition, but definitely in the fall. Oh yeah, yeah, for the the, the big Magilla. Until then, be well, and my best to the boys. Thank you very much, and say hi to all the folks out there in Chicago for me. All right, you can tell I was running out of energy at that point, but uh, happy to have Pants back on Word Balloon and looking forward to our next conversation. And hope you enjoyed today's uh, three conversations you heard on Word Balloon, all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you for your patronage. If you go to patreon.com slash word balloon, if you want to uh, subscribe and help the cause, 
That's where you do it. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Great deals are happening at InStock Trades, like 45% off all DC and Marvel titles. Uh, you can also try the Twilight Zone sale that's been going on, Volumes 1 and 2 of J. Michael Straczynski's Twilight Zone books, now 50% off. And uh, you can earn an extra 2% on your orders if, it's, if you're a first-timer uh, at InStock Trades. Just uh, go to the website. They've got all the details. They also have great deals on books like The Savage Sword of Conan, uh, Trade Paperback Volume 19. Man, all the really great classic uh, Bronze Age Conan stories uh, coming through Dark Horse these days. 42% off, just $11.59. My uh, friend uh, James Robinson, uh, I loved his Invader series. Uh, the last arc is uh, collected in uh, The Martians Are Coming, Trade Paperback Volume 3. It's uh, Steve Pugh and uh, James Robinson. Uh, the book is... 45% off. It's just $9.89. I mentioned it before. Deathlock from uh, Nathan Edmondson and Mike Perkins. Really great miniseries. Or, uh, you know, I'm not even sure what the status is. I, I got to save Deathlock. But I enjoyed it. And uh, I suggest you check out uh, the first volume. It's 50% off $8.49. Uh, just a few of the books at InStockTrades.com. Uh, you get the G.I. Joe Complete uh, Collection Hardcover Volume 7 from IDW, 30% off, $34.99, and a whole lot more. Check it out, InStockTrades.com. John Sutra saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Man, May was just uh, such a more complicated month than I expected. So, And it's our, our 10th anniversary month. Uh, and uh, I, I guess, you know, you can celebrate more than a month, can't you? I sometimes push my birthday celebration. Any fascinating, I know. Wait, wait till I tell you about what's been growing in my closet the last three weeks. Um, anyway, <laughs> I hope you'll uh, allow me the indulgence of celebrating Word Balloon's 10th anniversary all year long uh, with uh, guests and special programming and special announcements as the year progresses. But uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me this month and beyond. As we enter June, I've got more great conversation on the way. Make sure you come back and join us for really great talk right here on Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015. <laughs>